um we've been talking for a few seconds maybe a whole minute but um this is idiot mystic and we're with ronnie pontiac again i keep wanting to say pontiac but then i say ronnie pontiac but then it's like it sounds like i'm saying pontiac p-a-w-n-y-a-k i'm good with either way um Last time we talked about your last book that had come out, American Metaphysical Religion. But um, I feel like you do things very fast. So I, from like my limited understanding of watching you and the way you put stuff out there, I don't know where am I catching you right now? What are you in the middle of? Uh just did a lecture about the reemergence of the ancient Egyptian goddess Sekhmet for the last Tuesday society um, in London, although it was on Zoom, unfortunately. Um, I have been working on a Rosicrucian book that Inner Traditions has bought, and I have a moment now to rest from it. So, but I am thinking about it and looking at other research and consulting with people. And then our Orpheus book is that I wrote with Tamara is about to come out in August, and uh, and mostly just podcasts, lots of interviews. Do you, do you feel like it's funny to say that? I feel like this is a silly question, but how do you think? What would uh, your former teacher or what would manly p hall's reaction to your current output be to the podcasts and everything else having observed him i think that, i mean i'm puny <laughs> he would expect more from me i think because at 80 he was out out producing me significantly <laughs> so was he was he that type of person who was like productivity like he had to make what he had to make or like is that why you said that he would expect more from you well i think what i thought was happening with him was that he was following his joys in life and one thing he taught me was he would he'd work on something and he would be loving it and then he'd get kind of bored and tired but most people there will call it a day he would say all right i'm done with this now so now I'm moving to the other book I'm working on. And he'd be like a kid starting afresh, re-energized as he approached the new project. And then he might work on that a couple hours and get bored and might have some lunch and then would come back and yet work on an, an article for his journal that had him excited. So he was constantly uh, writing about things and studying things that made him happy. And so it really wasn't so much like an urge to work as it was a passion for knowledge that he was indulging to its fullest extent. Do you think you have, well, I, are you looking for the same thing he was looking for? Are you both seeking for the same, like, because I can't, his work seems to have changed over the course of its body as well. Like from, yeah, we'll just say it changed yeah. and it, I couldn't really tell what he was. I couldn't tell if he had found something at the end or if he was still looking. And when I say the end, I mean the last lectures or stuff like that. 
Um, and that's just from, a, from an outside observer. Mm-hmm. And then for me, I've always, like I've been telling people for a while that, oh, I'm just going to do, I need to do one more big trip because I have to check something. And mm-hmm. once I find out that thing, I'm good. And mm-hmm. this last time I um, was partaking in psychedelics, I I was meditating and I checked that thing and it I found out what I needed to find out and I'm good now. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, and for me now, I don't know what I'm looking for anymore because the thing I was looking for, I kind of found. Mm-hmm. So do you have something you're currently seeking? Do you, is there? I feel, I feel like I'm, I have found also, like I'm resting in nature and I'm, I'm trying to refine and improve that relationship because it's still necessary to smooth out old uh, programs and traumas and such that can interfere with that uh, attainment. But, but the joy of that attainment and the feeling of peace and, and a feeling of, of basic trust in, in nature is with me. And that's something I never had before. So while I may still go into um, repeated traumatic reactions to something, they don't control me anymore. I can observe them as they go by they're they're much more brief and it's easy for me to reattain that feeling of um it's, you know it's it's of trusting and not knowing is part of it i guess i mean it, it's a knowing that is a not knowing in my experience i can hear talk like you're describing a before and an after mm-hmm. so when is but i can't tell when that would have happened because your whole life seems to be it's not very uh compartmentalized like all of the things you've done seem to have some kind of connection and one goes into the other so when did you like till what point was trauma hold like have did it have you in its grasp or whatever we're talking about the thing i would say until fairly recently just a few years ago I was constantly struggling to balance it and to uh, understand it. And I didn't let it stop me from doing the things that I was doing, but it certainly did affect things I did and made me, I, I made choices, especially in people that I worked with that reflected family trauma. And since my family trauma was profound, <laughs> it was a profound mistake. Um, or not, because I learned from working with those people. It was a way to grow. But for me, it was uh, just a few years ago, there was a series of deaths, um, really beginning as, I think, 2018, but really hitting me. They all hit me, but in but 2000, uh, sorry, 2020, there's the drama, had a strong impact on me because of the deaths of best friends and mentors. And I'd already lost several mentors up to that point, about one or two a year. So these are people who I really cherished were wonderful human beings and, and uh, to lose them one after the other, and then to lose uh, friends who I were my, my joy in life, in, in some ways, it, it opened up my heart in a, in a way that, that I don't think anything else did. And uh, it's unfortunate that it required that kind of, of suffering. But uh, it was worth it. 
to to then awaken to cherishing life and to being truly okay at the deepest levels with not knowing and with just loving sorry i got a little um i can feel what you're saying and it doesn't feel very good but i see yes anyway this is where that it's weird when the the energy stuff is real and then someone says something and then you can't talk anymore and then like wait i need to hold the walls <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so what it's interesting that i guess you were outputting you were we'll say okay every let's you were writing about the subjects you were writing about now and researching them and seeking but you still weren't completely at peace in yourself and i feel like a lot of people think that while you're not at peace with yourself or inside you can't seek on you can't keep seeking as well like you have to completely be lost or you have to be completely found you can't be in the middle and i feel like you being in the middle for some time helped you be where you are now mm -hmm. very much so now there again we have of the the human obsession with with certainty whether it be reason science or it be faith human beings want to know exactly what's going on and they're, they're willing to sacrifice one or the other <laughs> in order to have that feeling. But in truth, if you dig deep enough into faith and science, there's no certainty in them. That's yeah, part of the beauty of them. But it's, it's bizarre how what you're saying right now, if a scientist heard you, um, and we won't say like, uh, we won't say the top level scientists, because they're basically wizards at this point, And we know what right. to do in their private life. But this scientist, the conventionally educated ones would say there is certainty in science mm -hmm. and that everything is explained and as we explain things more it creates more certainty but it's as though like privilege and i'm not saying this for everyone but it seems like like privilege of the right education helps you understand reality properly so like you understand mm -hmm. things understand. and i understand but then someone who's being educated about like in an ineffective way about things just to make them a better worker or something like that, they won't even look at it the same way. So I don't know how to approach that situation, that thing. Well, keep in mind first that, that it is everyone's inheritance, everyone's heritage, that within them is that knowledge. And so now when that knowledge awakens, is really more about them and less about what we can do we can okay. we can try to communicate uh, present example uh, use humor um, it's all about opening the mind um, th that's why psychedelics were so popular in the 60s and 70s and it was all about not so much healing trauma as it is now as they legalize it but it was about waking up to these other dimensions of reality. And people like Terrence McKenna were, were mapping out some of this, and there's people continuing that work today. And in fact, I, I just heard about um, Amy Hale, who's a, a wonderful scholar, is working with somebody who is doing a, uh, an AI VR kind of mushroom trip 
programming that that so that somebody can actually use VR to have the the equivalent supposedly of a mushroom trip. So there's all these efforts to to um, access these kinds of states of consciousness, changing states of consciousness. Uh, the the story used to be, and it's not true that for the longest time they used to say if we could only dose everybody with acid then the whole world would just magically improve. And of course, now we know that there are people who take acid and it just makes them more evil. That gives them better ideas about how to be evil. Yeah. So it's, it's something that um, is a question that, that people have wrestled with for uh, ever since their relatives at the dinner table disagreed with them. You know, how do I open someone's mind when they're so pressed into a certain point of view? And I think that we can only look at it as uh, all souls are evolving and um, they are at a stage where they're they're very fixated on a certain aspect of experience and that's okay and and we can we can live our lives and by living our lives we are providing an example of an alternative and many scientists it's it's actually surprising how it seems like they always at some point in life have the inexplicable experience. Uh, somebody, a dead relative showing up or some weird thing that happens to them that makes them think twice about about certainty. And then, of course, we have a, a famous book, the name of which escapes me right now, because I haven't seen it since college, I don't think, um, that um, is about how every scientific revolution is considered false and mystical when it first happens by yeah. the established science and then eventually is proven right. And then itself turns into an institutionalized conformist cult. So that, that is how science operates. And, and then eventually also when we look into physics, of course, um, and the quant and, and all of that, not even taking a new agey approach to it, just real physics, they, they, they admit, I mean, is it a wave? Is it a particle? Is it there, there's a mystery begins to enter the picture in a very big way. And so when, since we just, I want to go in two directions, but I have to go in the logical one first physics. Um, it's, it's as the, I guess, if we look at physics as a mystery school, it looks like, let's say people with a master's in um, some type we'll say insert even engineering let's include any branch of any education that includes physics they seem to be like just like low level people in the mystery school mm -hmm. and then it seems like the higher you get in let's say ivy league education or the top end of research institutes and stuff like that then it seems that's where they have real physics or like the truth about what's happening and is that is that like a purposeful is that like intentional i guess to keep because like we can because there like we said there is there's no certainty in anything but there are people who have a rudimentary understanding of science and then have to work so much that they don't get to learn more right and they die with the knowledge that they may have gotten in let's say someone i know who's a nurse was telling me that uh, some like up to, I don't know, something about uh, continuing education and nurses who some who graduate, like, let's say 30 or 40 years before now are still running on basic information from back then. 
that may not wow. be accurate. That's a scary thought. <laughs> if it's so, if it's true. Yes, I don't I don't know if it is, but I just mean like in physics or science subjects, do you think that there's this like is that intentional or is it just that when you have more time and money, you can sit around and contemplate more and then that I'm Right, I understand. I think I do think that there's definitely um a class filter that is going on. Now it's not absolute. Um, talent is still, you know, genius is still what it is. And a person with genius can overcome that. But even in metaphysics, I, I've discussed this. Um, there's a pressure when you're making your living at it. There's a pressure when you are out there branding on YouTube and you need to provide content and you want to have a million subscribers because you want to make money and you want to have people give you free stuff that you can review. And it's, it's, you know, it's a big, it's a whole job, right? And when you're doing that, it shapes what you do. So for instance, even for me, when I lectured at PRS, and I started to get a big audience and PRS was overjoyed. And the people that thought that I might be his heir apparent thought, great, look at this. He's attracting a big audience. Let's go. And I could tell, first of all, myself what they wanted me to talk about by their reactions. They were shaping me. And I could also have people who came to me and said, you should talk more about this. That's what we like. That's what we want to hear about. And the people that ran PRS were telling me, you need to grow this audience. And if you grow the audience, then we can really do this. And so you should talk more about that. And at first, I just figured, well, these people are smarter than I am. And I'm listening to my audience. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of, but I found myself being pigeonholed. And I didn't like what I was lecturing about, even though it was very popular and I was making some money from it. And it was like everybody was happy, but I wasn't happy. And then I, I talked to Manly Hall about it because he was the one who suggested uh, that I do this. So he said that he kind of felt the same way, that while he enjoyed his Sunday lectures and he liked very much helping people and distilling uh, information, <clears throat> excuse me, in ways that could be practical and helpful that he would love to sit down and talk about deeply philosophical and esoteric things like he used to in the past, sit down and talk about the Neoplatonists for five nights in a row for two hours every night going into all the detail. But that's not what they wanted. That's not what the people that followed him needed. So once you, you, you start to get shaped by those pressures, it does affect how you see things and, and what you produce. And, and we can see that, of course, all around us in the corporate structure where so many stupid decisions are made, collateral damage, all kinds of things that occur because of the rush to profit or to advance or to just please the shareholders. Um, I think that in science, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, people need grants. And, and many of the people in science are just trying to keep their jobs and do the work that they're given to do. And they don't want to think about the deeper issues of it because that's demanding enough. Only at the highest levels are they expected and rewarded for that kind of thinking. There's always exceptions, of course, people who maverick kind of, and they, they, they're scientists, but then they have an experience and then they go off into a new direction that presents a completely different kind of uh, of lifestyle for them and allows them to open up their minds to, to other things. But there is a, a lot of pressure 
I think also uh, to avoid that, uh, you know, what is often dismissed as the California mentality, you know, the, okay. the getting mystical about science. And that's, that's actually considered by many, as you're saying, uh, scientifically uh, oriented people as, as a dangerous backsliding into superstition. Um, but it's, a, it's really funny because in ancient Egypt, they had two kinds of doctors. The one kind were called the priests of Sekhmet, and they were a combination of shaman and doctor. They actually had practical medicine. We have um, papyruses that talk about the um, surgeries and, and simple ways of fixing bone breaks. And they, they had those skills, but they were also shamans, basically priests. They were, they were doing spells. They were expelling evil. They were purifying people. And there was another class of physicians that were purely practical. They did not have any of the skills that were spiritual. All they knew were recipes for drugs and techniques for fixing things that had been damaged in some way. And often they worked together. There was no hostility there. They would, they would bring in both of them in order to heal somebody and they would consult with each other. And I think it's funny that, that we have this, this divide and it's not absolute. I mean, there are so many doctors who are metaphysically oriented and the whole holistic medical field um, opened up a, a way for many people to embrace that. And there is a history of that in America. I write in my book about um, Alexander Wilder, and he was a, mostly a writer, but he was also a doctor, a physician. And there was something called eclectic medicine in those days, which he wrote the textbook for. And in those days, allopathic medicine was super primitive. It, was, it wasn't very good, and it was very harmful for most people. So there were people that wanted to be physicians that were more effective and they were interested in the ideas of the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans about medicine. They were interested in Paracelsus and in herbalism, and they were also aware of the psychological elements in some illnesses. So they created this, this whole new school of medicine called eclectic medicine that uh, had colleges and, and uh, an association and, uh, and it was actually, in my opinion, much more modern than allopathic medicine was back then. And it, it resembled more what holistic medicine looks to, like today and probably was the beginning of holistic medicine. Uh, in there, there they, they had no problem. Uh, for instance, in the journal for eclectic medicine, Alexander Wilder would write about esoteric matters and would introduce people to platonic ideas or to the ideas of uh, Alephus Levi. I mean, stuff you wouldn't expect. And they were open to it because physicians felt that they should have an understanding of the spiritual side of life. So that was wiped out when the world wars hit. Um, they, the, the whole AMA organized in a big way and they eliminated this competition. So uh, by the time World War I was around, eclectic medicine was pretty much gone. Um, but there is this history of it. So I think that even today, there are doctors and, and, uh, and scientists who have some of these ideas and beliefs or experiences, but don't sh perhaps share them. I've met some uh, people who you wouldn't think had those experiences, but when they had the opportunity to talk about it, 
surprising things were were said and um i do think there are a lot of people who maintain a materialistic kind of attitude they don't even have to be science i mean some people just feel that way about life and they don't relate to anything else my dad was like that my dad was a total atheist realist just you know do your job i'm a very ethical cool guy but um but just you know what what is that's i feel like now we know each other well enough for me to laugh at you using <laughs> the, the two adjectives to describe your father were ethical and cool yeah it sounds like an alien pretending to be a son describing parent well there's some truth to that i think because we were certainly aliens to each other and and uh, although we did wind up uh respecting and loving each other it took his lifetime <laughs> pretty much to get there uh, most of his life was spent fighting me with everything he had thinking that i was wrong about everything and i just happened to be the the stubborn kid that he needed <laughs> that that didn't really ultimately impact because i was just going to do what i was going to do and uh yeah he was uh i say he was ethical because he really was like famously ethical in a very unethical world and and he was he was cool in that that even though he was a terrible dad he really was um he was a great boss and friend and somebody who's who like helped people go to college and helped hundreds of people achieve better lives very deliberately and um, so for that reason, I say he was cool, because I think that was a very cool thing that he did. This is, it's interesting, because from a, obviously, from a practical sense, we can talk about, I guess you also help people. So it, but did he do, was he a professional helper, like you are? Or was he no, helping no. out of interest? He, he was he was somebody who he worked a job, but but through that job, whenever he could provide opportunities for people and also in his personal life, he would he would loan people stuff or get loan people money when they needed it. And uh, he was somebody who really uh, cared and and tr he, he cared about people who were trying to make their way in the world because he started with nothing. He was an immigrant who came out here with nothing. And he worked his way up from being a janitor to being a vice president of a company that, that he was able to sell along with uh, a few other people that, that made him a successful man. And uh, when, he, when he, having worked that trajectory, um, when he saw people that I guess reminded him of himself, people who were really dedicated and showed ethics in what they were doing, he would You'd even even if they didn't ask him for help, you know, he would he would say, "You're, I'm watching you. I like what you're doing, and I like who you are. What can I do? You know, do you have any goals? Do you want to, do you want to go to college? That kind of thing." And and he would help them achieve it. Um, I I didn't know about a lot of this at the time because it was in his work life. And one of the funny things about our relationship was that uh, I had had by then some inkling of these activities, but I thought they were fairly limited. And his funeral, which we expected to be a very small family event, hundreds of people showed up and they were people that helped that he helped. And so they they would come up to me afterwards and, and tell me things that he had done. So I got this amazing like view of him that I didn't know about what he was actually doing in the world. I'm so confused. 
sometimes when you just hear about because I'm a dad and I mean my son and I get along great I feel like we're just everything's great I don't think about stuff like but it seems confusing because now when we look at your father as a spiritual being it's a very confusing incarnation because you're describing him positively but I'm thinking of child Ronnie and it's a very confusing I don't know what it even means right because what what you've got is a man who um, was a child when he became a victim of war and and was nearly killed I mean he was bombs were dropped on a factory that he was a slave laborer in and he was knocked unconscious Uh, he was lined up to be machine gunned and woke up in a pit of dead bodies I mean all kinds of horrible things and he's a kid you know when these things were happening to him so you know by that point I would say he was you know 12 13 years old but he was a hard-working kid who who even they recognized was someone that was maybe standing out from those who'd given up. And I think that's part of the reason he was uh, kind to people that reminded him of himself when he was a child. Um, but in his emotional life and in his family life, first he, he married my mother, who was a, a really bipolar, uh, borderline personality disorder, also a war victim who had been suffered rape from both sides when she was a child. And they were these proud immigrants who they wouldn't uh, get treatment. They they were survivors. That's all that had to happen. They they didn't care that they were carrying around all these grievous wounds and traumas that were disrupting their lives constantly. Um, they just thought that standing on their own two feet and and living another day was all the proof they needed that they had they had survived. And so, uh, although he was such an ethical great guy out there in the world. At home, he was petulant and angry and constantly uh, disturbed and nervous. And uh, and she was a lot of the reason why. I, I think that he might have been a better off if he'd been a bachelor, actually. And he might not have been quite so freaked out because she was constantly doing things that freaked him out. And uh, And so, and also I think that if I had been the kind of kid that he wanted, if I had been a... Uh, a studious, ambitious young man who got my hair cut and, uh, you know, cared about being upstanding, that he would have been been a little bit more of a happy dad than he was. But I started out like at, I mean, I can't remember when I didn't come up with things that 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 just drove him crazy. Everything I wanted to do drove him crazy. Everything I liked drove him crazy. We used to have this great, I don't know if I told you this story, stop me if I did. It's my ultimate dad story. So he used to, by the time I'm like 11 or 12, you know, I'm getting my ass kicked everywhere I go. I'm just like, okay, no one to turn to for help. So I'm going to hide in libraries. Nobody goes in libraries, especially bullies. So, okay, I'm in the library and I discover William Blake. Wow, the powers of the imagination. This is the stuff right here. This is, this is what I'm into. So imagination became one of my favorite words. It still is. Well, for my dad, the word imagination meant something close to effeminate or uh, deluded. He was of a generation that that thought that imagination was something, you know, it's for women. <laughs> Men don't have imagination. 
And he would often say to me when I would tell him things, um, especially once I got, I was working with Manly Hall and I would tell him about spiritual experiences or uh, interesting things that had happened in history. He would say, I don't have that kind of imagination and look at me like pussy, <laughs> you know, really, that's what he was thinking, you know? And, and so um, we fought about it. I mean, all his life. And finally he passed and we did become friends near the end. He realized that I, that I wasn't the horrible person that he thought I was, that I was who I'd been all along and that he could count on me and that I was a good guy. And he was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I mean, he actually apologized for treating me the way he had. And he passes and leaves this mess. My mom is still alive. She tried to commit suicide. The whole family's in an uproar. I mean, it was just a mess. And a lot of things that had to be addressed. And at one point I had the, the symbolic, uh, you know, my back went out and I was just oh, too much pressure, you know, and a friend of mine said, I know this great guy who releases trauma through muscle work and he's got this beautiful little cottage in Laurel Canyon. You just go there and look at the trees and they put on some nice music and then you just work all that out of your muscles. You'll feel much better. So I went to the guy and I thought, OK, you know, he didn't ask me much. He just said, so you're you're here to release trauma. And I said, yeah, my, my father just died and it was a very difficult relationship and situation. And he was like, okay, and that was it. And so lay down on the table, he's, he's looking at me, you know, the way sometimes body workers will just stand there and look at your, your posture. And but he gets this weird look on his face and there's this long, long delay. And then he goes, okay, big sigh. And I'm like, God, what's he going to say, right? You know, and he says, I'm not, a, I'm not a medium. I'm not into this stuff. He said, I mean, I, I respect it, but I don't do that. He said, but your dad is here. And he is so strong and insistent with a message that keeps being repeated that I need to tell it to you. And I said, okay. And I'm thinking, oh man, you know, now, now the spiel, right? You know, oh, your dad has a message for you. Sure. He says, your dad wants you to know that he's learning to love his imagination. I am you. I don't This story freaks me out. <laughs> I, and I think it is your, I will. Okay. Now we're going to, I will. I don't want to segue too hard. I don't want to like turn this thing, the ship around, but I want to use, like we talked about something so personal to you. And now I want to fit this into the things that, okay. So let's say I won't talk about the pandemic and stuff because that was over. Right. But currently what's happening is the Russia Ukraine thingy mm -hmm. situation? Yeah, there's crazy stuff going on in Africa, as always, in mm -hmm. Sudan specifically. Um, I think like there's there's no internet in Pakistan. There's a lot of weird stuff yeah. going on. Yeah, um, but when, but also at the same time that all of this is happening. And uh, if anyone's listening, I'm sorry in advance if you don't like the subject. The U.S. government is publicly talking about 
uh, unidentified flying objects that uh, they, the last hearing was, I believe, two weeks ago, and they still continue to say they don't know what they are and they have new footage and they have witnesses coming forth in the military. Then you have people from uh, their three verified CIA people. Uh, I can say their names in a list, but it's irrelevant because everyone knows who they are. But it's like Jim Semivan. Um, I see, I forgot the other two guys' names. But anyway, there's a bunch of people. There's Luis Elizondo. There's, and then there's, so these are some military people, government people, CIA people. Then there's scientists from Harvard and Stanford. There's Dr. Gary Nolan, who's a he's a microbiologist from Stanford. There's Avi Loeb, who's from Harvard Physics. Everyone's saying that there's there's non-human intelligence present on Earth. Some of them fly around in mechanical objects. Some of them are non-mechanical and some kind of amorphous blob thingies. Where does this fit into the fact that we were just talking about your dad having a different opinion than you? And in those like micro day-to-day -day interactions, we're only thinking about things like this, but it seems like we're part of something much larger, like almost mm -hmm. terrifyingly large. Mm -hmm. And it's, and so where do you stand on the fact that you have you were born in the time where it went from like I guess you weren't born in this this time but like within a hundred years we've gone from where to where mm -hmm. so what does this mean to you like how do you feel like it mm. what's going on well it's a uh, it's interesting because I definitely think that that is part of what the problem was between my father and I we were from entirely different worlds. And his life experiences and mine bore so little resemblance to each other, especially in childhood, that it was like we were aliens to each other and aliens who had come from different, completely different worlds. Um, so now this is this has uh, increasing in rapidity as the more and more change and more and more technology comes along. Now, I happen to love it and I, I find all of it fascinating. I feel more at home now than I ever did before. Uh, I don't I don't view AI and, and other stuff quite as I mean, I certainly recognize the alarming potential of all of it. Um, but I also feel exhilarated by this change and, and by the potential of it. And I have the view that, that it's almost like this. For a long time, the, the primary motive of, of cultures was self-preservation. And this led to all kinds of uh, codifying of law and religious experience and all kinds of hierarchies and all kinds of us and them patriotism. And, and so for my father was, would have fit in beautifully with almost any other era before, uh, before the changes that have happened. He, he was the kind of guy that they would have liked working for the Holy Roman empire or, or in the temple of Ra, you know, and, uh, I, on the other hand, 
I wouldn't have fit into anywhere before now. I couldn't I couldn't have stood it because of my absolute rejection of conformity and and my interest in, in the latest and the new and in change and in getting deeper and fresher visions of the world. So I think that uh, that the way that these things link and it is it's a real challenge because here we are. Um, it relates uh, once again to the, this, this thing he's coming up, The Secret of the Golden Flower, that I may have spoken to you about, the Taoist alchemical text, where it talks about the higher soul and the lower soul. It's a great metaphor. Maybe it's more than a metaphor, but uh, the, they're both the same soul. It's just that, according to them, when we incarnate, uh, part of our soul becomes so engrossed in the process of keeping this this galaxy of, of millions and perhaps billions of things that make up our bodies going along with then our brain and the world out here and all of our goals and necessities and needs and we need to take care of our family and we need to make sure we do this and and this is a it, it fills up our world and we forget that we're we're more than that we think that we're just that society and to me human society and human beings like my dad uh we're representative in a way of that that view of of this is all about making uh everything work in our own you know bit of it we don't care about what's out there my dad always used to say to me i don't care if the whole world blows up you know i just don't want i just don't <laughs> want to have yeah i mean he was just like you know just don't single me out and and so and there's that's very common in 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 his generation and i think also among the boomers i think that there's that kind of mentality too it's like let the whole thing go i don't care but just just let me have mine and that is the way human beings have been for a long time i don't think that that's possible anymore i mean the technology has outstripped us all so far whether we're talking about ufos or robotics or ai the world is about to change in a, in a massive way that's going to affect millions and millions and millions of people. And people will be forced to change. And the way we do things will be forced to change. How are we gonna occupy everybody if we have armies of robots, of Elon Musk's robots uh, with AI brains, you know, being the nurses and the, the, the factory workers and the psychologists. And uh, I'd rather have a, People will be saying, well, I'd rather have one of those robots do surgery on me than a human being. Are you kidding me? You know, um, that's all coming very fast. And, and so what do we do with our worlds in that? How do we cherish our families? How do we raise our children to function in a world like that? Right. Like what? Like, OK, so if. Let's say the same taxes that we pay and the same. um vaccine guidelines and the same educational boards these things are regulated by the same people that are saying that there are things in the sky but now if, if we're living in the day where there's things in the sky then of course now it makes all ancient text less ridiculous because we're living in a time where there's there are chariots in the sky right so i guess do you feel a personal like do you do you have i guess and i would ask like even if you could channel some of what you feel uh manly hall's take on this was um who are the occupants of the crafts mm. because they've been here since let's just say let's say we i don't know about 
ancient times, but let's say since the 40s, when they've been having these military encounters and stuff, who is in them? In your I think I definitely think there's evidence that that they've been here uh, longer. Um, I think that you can see in the art very suggestive, very suggestive things. I, I agree. Uh, so, um, and I also I just feel like I, it makes sense to me that there's there's more out out there than us. I, it's it's the human story seems to be growing up from. You know, the sun goes around us. <laughs> That's where we started, right? The whole empty universe and us. Yeah. Highly unlikely. I I go with, uh, I had a friend who was an amazing medium that I wrote about in the book, Edward Monroe. And uh, I asked the, the spirit or whoever it was that he was channeling, what is this place? Like, so what is earth? Why are we here? And he said, that Earth was a combination of kindergarten and the devil's island of space, and that it was a place where all the little Hitlers of the universe were sent to learn some very basic lessons about being. And he said, that's why it's way over here in, in this far corner of the Milky Way, away from everybody else, all the other intelligence that's out there, so that we, we won't hurt anything. <laughs> I mean, it seems plausible, like as though... It as if it's some kind of spiritual building ground or playground or hit. I mean, we're pretty Hitlerish sometimes, but, but anyway, right. I mean, it I, seems like we all have these, yeah. this, this inclination to, to be dictators on not yeah. everybody, but a, a lot of human beings and it's, a lot of even let's face it, the dogs and the cats too. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> they we've bred it into them seemingly, but probably yes, but okay. So, so if we're saying, do, do you think that, I guess you're obvious, of course, are you f familiar with that drawing of the, the demon that Alistair Crowley summoned? Oh yeah. Yeah. And how much it looks like. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So oh, yeah, for sure. So do you feel like, and I guess this is something I asked someone recently um another when i say another author i get stressed out because i couldn't i now i feel weird calling him an author because he does so much more but anyway it's someone called carl abrahamson oh yeah um and we were talking about magic and and deities and gods and such and he, he he was off the standing that those things exist in our minds as archetypes and ways we can generate our own energy and use it in different ways. And then I have, and that's just me paraphrasing, of course, but like it was a, mm -hmm. there was a, not a dis, disembodied intelligence that right. exists uh, are you of that same opinion or do you believe that there's some kind of life like that's non-human and that these that's been written about in like the ancient texts of every culture are those entities real or are they just like tools for us to use i i actually that was part of my lecture about the reemergence of segment on monday and the way i i looked at the picture was i said uh, we, whenever we're considering any kind of deity, we're looking at the 
the conundrum, the age old conundrum, right? Is it a metaphor? Is it a deity? Is it an archetype? Is it an egregore, right? That's another one that, that people are, are using when talking about the gods. And uh, I examine each of those things and each of them is inadequate, in my opinion. They all shed light on something, but they're not any one in itself an adequate description. So I kind of, in discussing this, I wind up a little bit in, in Wittgenstein's uh, corner saying, now these words are getting really fuzzy. We got to remember that. We, we don't want to be certain. We don't even know what an archetype is. We have definitions. We don't know, you know, an egregore, you know, we, you know, a bunch of us got together and we thought the same thing. And now that thing is living out here and it's, it's making us do things. I mean, I don't know, maybe, but. Um, Starbucks is an egregore. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And suddenly, you've got to have some, yeah. and, and so uh, that Starbucks Egregore was everyone drink until everyone in the world is drinking Starbucks all the time. It won't be satisfied. It does so, seem like it. I'm just it saying. Does does I know I know. And actually, <laughs> I pointed out other good things about that theory. For instance, questioning charismatic authority, whether it's in a corporate or in an individual form, which that does teach you to do. And uh, so there, there are virtues to each of these perspectives and limitations to each of them. And we're left in this in this gray world of 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 pseudo definitions that some people want to give certainty to. We're back to that discussion, right? The need for certainty through faith or reason. And uh, one of the things that happened when I gave that lecture, and I think this will be an interesting illustration of all this is so I, part of what the phenomenon, the, the story of the Sekhmet emergence is here was a, an Egyptian lioness headed uh, justice goddess who was forgotten for two, worshiped for 2000 years and then forgotten for 2000 years. Uh, she doesn't show up again until like the 1790s when Napoleon is in, in Egypt and they find some of these statues and make drawings of them bring them home to France, the British defeat Napoleon, bring the statues to England or in the British Museum. Much time later, there's a little bit of writing about what the inscriptions say and, and all that. Well, long story short, by the 1970s, there's a statue of Sekhmet in John and Yoko's apartment in New York City. And there's this weird like revival starting to happen that in the 80s takes a major step forward as a guy named Robert Masters, who was the man who inspired John Lennon to write the song Mind Games, which was based on a book that he, that he had written with his wife, Jean Houston, uh, Robert Masters. Masters had this full on, um, he was one of the earliest guys um, in the psychedelic experiments in the early 1960s in New York that involved the CIA. He was one of the people that volunteered because he had a, a background as a psychologist um, and in science to to give the doses and to to put these experiments together and he himself experimented with it and like many of the people that worked on it it massively changed his mind about many things and he started to work with a woman named michelle carrier to explore he hoped um archetypal worlds and archetypes. So he would put her into trance or they would they would use psychedelics and try to visit places. And she became uh, just completely overwhelmed by the world of Sekhmet, this place that she visited with temples and she was getting instruction. And 
And then he wound up getting totally impressed with Sekhmet and believed that, that he had been chosen to revive the religion and wrote a book about this. Well, anyway, now here we are, and I think it was something like 40 million hashtag hits for Sekhmet on TikTok. And you can buy Sekhmet anything, mugs and t-shirts and pillows and all kinds of stuff. And that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is the weird phenomenon that have, have happened in uh, with this. And so examples, people that I spoke to, many people I spoke to who worship Sekhmet, who first encountered her in a dream. They'd never seen the word or lion-headed, I mean, nothing. And then they have a dream and they hear the word or they see the image and they feel like they have to find out what this means because it's so powerful in the dream. Um, people who encounter her in a museum, a statue, and they are overcome with emotion. They stand there weeping or they stand for hours as if hypnotized. People who see the statues, especially in Egypt, move or or hear them say something or see uh, apparitions around them all this weird stuff i mean tons of it so okay so i gave the lecture and i i talked about iamblichus and proclus and that they they talked about how to ensoul statues because in theurgy and in, in the in this neoplatonic means of approaching nearness to the divine so that we can purify ourselves and enlighten ourselves we, we are said, or at least for Iamblichus, we begin with a statue, just some simple little thing to remind us of this image of virtue and goodness and beauty and truth. And, and then to do it properly, we want to uh, ritually ensoul the statue with the presence of the deity. So I'm talking about this stuff. And at the end of the lecture, somebody in the audience says that they had just gotten back from Egypt six and a half weeks ago, that they had not known what Sekhmet was, that when they were at a temple, they wandered into a sanctuary where one of the famous, most famous statues stands. And they just had this experience of seeing it move. And beyond that, they claimed that they were healed, that they went in having tested positive uh, from COVID, and that they they were symptomatic, but they you know were wearing their masks and they were they were like I'm only in Egypt for this long I'm still going to go do what I'm going to do, and and they claim that after seeing the statue move that that they no longer were sick that they they had no symptoms and when they were tested they were negative. I don't know maybe somebody was pulling my leg you know I mean that's the thing about no, this stuff that, but how do we explain something like that I mean if what if it's real then there's it, a whole talk about UFOs I mean that's even weirder right <laughs> yes but I feel like that's true I feel like it's like it's hard for me to this is like one of those if this was a private conversation and I was being my full there's like a slight filter I have for the podcast because I'm seated and right, I had like it. back surgeries and stuff. So I'm just like, I'll just sit like a normal person. But like, I would be jumping up and down right now and shaking you and you would have to tell <laughs> me to stop. Because I do feel like you talking about Sekhmet, I've seen the same thing happening with certain other smaller deities. Mm -hmm. And like, at first it seems, I was like, oh, this is cute. That was literally my thought. I was like, oh, um i'll use and this is i'm gonna say the most controversial one because i want to attract her ire or whatever we'll see what happens but i've noticed a lot of daughters of lilith lately yeah. 
yeah many hundreds of that like um that they've like attended my meditation classes and when they tell me that i get excited like almost like like a dad like excited i'm like yes yeah exactly oh you do that like i don't i have nothing i have no connection there Mm -hmm. and i have no interactivity with lilith as a i don't want to interact with anyone i don't know i'm happy not interacting with non-physical beings right now but i'm just noticing that there's a lot of other at first i thought it was a trend i thought people were picking demigods goddesses like even like some people just like pick a some type of mythological creature Mm -hmm. or like or that's still a wrong word but a creature a crypto cryptid i don't know right so i just i wonder is there we're going to switch the subject again are there any of these forces active in your life like directly do you feel like so are you asking if i've had those kind of experiences like or I... or if you feel like one of these deities slash insert any word here is interested in you or has has had interaction with you specifically like not just if you've seen something happen but if you have like an like a like a deity or a theme keeps recurring in your life and it finds you. Well, I, I'll say, I mean, this is a place where where the childhood trauma impacted me in the sense that I am highly filtered around that. Like I have this conviction that that they're busy, they're deities. <laughs> they don't have time to be worried about me. In fact, if I am interested in a deity, I want to be the kind of person that they don't have to worry about. Um, but at the same time, if I look back on my life, I can see patterns and I don't even know, I, I don't, I haste, I, I don't really want to put a, a deity, a name That's on fair. it or something. But, but for instance, cats have saved my life multiple times. And um, I've had experiences around cats that are simply extraordinary and that have had such huge life-changing implications for me that that I feel a sense of loyalty toward cats in general that is almost uh, deity-like because I know what they have done for me in my life, especially during the darkest times in my life. And, And so... And I'm not talking about, you know, I had a nice cat that made me feel better when I was depressed. I mean, like, you know, there was one point in my life when I was uh, about 17, where I was just completely abandoned by everyone, family and friends. And I had, I had nothing. I just had a room and uh, I was living in a city that I'd not grown up in or I didn't know anybody. And I became profoundly suicidal and uh, I was all ready to go. And I was sitting there and right as i was i was getting ready to go a this gnarled black cat with like a half an ear torn off and one eye squinted and and i lived atop this huge rickety staircase and i look out the door which i I left it open and here comes this this gnarled cat walking up to me and jumped up right next to me and was inter- suddenly just like, so who are you? You know, and was interacting with me. And it, this cat would not leave me alone, would like show up every day and eat food with me. And and it rekindled my love of life. And so that's just one example. 
uh, but there were many, um, especially even earlier in my life. So um, that those kind of subtle things, you can look sometimes back on your life and see themes like that, where you can see some kind of, so now if I wanted to apply this, I might say, well, this is the, this must be Bast, right? The Egyptian cat goddess. So I'm going to worship God, Bast. And I do have, you'll see figures of Bast around, but what am I honoring? My, my point of view is kind of, I'm, I think of it this way. I don't know who invented cats and dogs, but yes, that was like, what you've done for humanity is incalculable. I mean, I think more human beings have learned to be human through cats and dogs and through other human beings. Uh, and that's, that's we, I don't even know what that is. Like, I would like to get like a anthropologist take on why humans seem to learn how to behave better from animals than they do other humans. Yeah, I would, that would be interesting to know, wouldn't it? It's, it's fascinating. Like, um, I also think that, that it's, this doesn't just take us back to indigenous ideas, though, that everything's sacred. So the cats are sacred, the dogs are sacred. And um, and we can personify that in God forms if that helps us to to feel connected. I would personally, I mean, I'd love to have that connection. Like in studying Sekhmet, I just thought Sekhmet was great. I I, I would love to have, and I have had uh, ex dream experiences involving Sekhmet. And I am one of the people actually who heard that word before I knew what it was. But it's very difficult for me to be, uh, uh, a religious servant of anything and and to be dedicated in that way in the way that i was raised uh and such there's a certain kind of and even around manly hall i mean, think he also was sort of i mean he had this beautiful japanese altar in his room and he he would he'd sometimes burn a little stick of incense in front of a buddha figure or a yabyum or something and um he he had a kind of devotional side going on but not not that much it was almost as if his work and his life were his devotion and he was expressing prayer through through what he was doing all the time and so i i actually kind of envy people who can go deeply into devotional uh religious bhakti yoga right i mean that that's but i'm i'm not really composed that way i'm i'm more coming from a raja kind of kind of point and so I, I have experimented with it here, there, and it can be very, I found it comforting, but I can't say that that uh, that I can feel that, except for that. I mean, if you really were gonna press me, I'd go, there's some kind of feline energy that that has looked out for me my whole life. Now, is that a goddess or is that just karma or luck or chance or who knows, but it, it made me feel a sense of of loyalty and and devotion and adoration toward that energy being there for me at times when nothing else was. Have you ever, and this is again, I don't, I don't know where these, what's happening, but where <laughs> there's a lot, there are a lot of other podcasts you're on and you're, you're, a, you're, this portion of your life, I feel like is well chronicled. So I'm trying to get to some things that maybe we don't get to talk about okay. or you don't get to talk about. Okay. So we've, I guess, Manly P. Hall, as of now, when people read his work, mm -hmm. it seems to set them on some kind. It's almost like uh, Ram Dass and Be Here Now. Like people will read it and it sets them off on a, like if someone reads something about Plato, 
in secret teachings they'll go on a play-doh kick yeah yeah or they like they're like oh atlantis is real ah. right um in your case do you feel like because we've talked about spiritual purpose and it seems like you're helping people and your your and tamara's existence and your artistic work is helping other people just by its existence but do you feel like like this is this is why you're here and now you're going to just refine and deepen this practice during the rut and I, it's a big question so of course but but and you can but you've also made music you've all you've done so you make music you've done so much different stuff that i guess it's hard to tell if someone else was thinking like how does how is this guy talking about this and he was also in a band and he also gives lectures and he also does didn't get along with his dad <laughs> like do do you feel like this is what was meant to happen or do you think there's still for something beyond this for you i don't know you know i don't i kind of don't think that way i i i take it as it comes and and so um it's a time in my life when i was uh making music that's what where everything was happening in my life and that's where all my friends were and all the synchronicities were and all the it was just this amazing adventure and then it kind of along with the music business it kind of petered out and uh, and then all of a sudden I was around film people and, and not my doing. And it turned out that I, I could work on film, that I was good at, at certain aspects of production. And um, so then we did film for a while and that was a fascinating thing. We're still doing music, but it was a different level because it wasn't possible to do music in the old way where you had an indie band that could tour on its own and was outside the system. And that's really tough to do now. Um, there's such a supportive in the nineties. Wow. You know, there was just clubs everywhere. You could sleep on people's floors. It was easy. You could, we used to set up our tours online just on with fans and other bands. We didn't even involve any agents or, uh, any management or anything like that. It was all DIY. So that was great. But to do that now would be extremely difficult. And so conditions change, the world changes and it hands you different opportunities. Um, right now, the books really uh, happened because of COVID on one level, and also because a friend of ours who'd been a, a very important mentor to us, uh, who was a friend of Manly Hall's, who was his driver and his audio engineer, also a guy who was a tremendous jazz and just plain guitarist, I mean, just an incredible musician, played with Lena Horne and all kinds of people. Um, he was dying and he had like two feet, as he put it, of manuscripts that he'd never digitized and never finished. And now he was literally too sick to work on them. And he called us and scared us to death. I mean, he just, he was just, listen to me from where I'm calling you right now and do your work. And he told both of us, he, he told Tamara, you need to write about your friendship with Manly Hall because it was so unique. And he told me, all this study and research that we've been talking about for all these years, you've got to write it down. What are you waiting for? And then COVID hit. And so we were stuck at home and, and we just kind of, okay, I guess it's time to start writing. And we, we didn't really, and we had no idea how to get published or anything. I mean, it was, we actually finished her book. Um, I say we, cause I, I was doing editing on it and 
Um, and we didn't know, you know, we sent it out to a few people and people were like, I don't know, <laughs> it's great. We love it, but, uh, you know, don't know where you're going to get it out. And things were really rough in our life at that point. And uh, it was all because of Norman D. Ellis, this, this great uh, writer about Egypt, especially, who um, she was somebody that Tamara had always loved uh, since back in the day when she wrote Awakening Osiris, which is a version of the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And I saw that she offered uh, astrological readings and and I thought, well, this would be a nice way to cheer Tamara up after all this suffering. This was all the deaths that we were going through. And so the funny thing was that the reading was fine, but they just became instant pals. And when Normandy heard Tamara mention that she'd just written a book about Manly Hall, she said, oh my God, I just had a dream about Manly Hall. And, uh, and then she told us this dream. And, and so she said, would you send me your book so I can just check it out? Um, I'm really curious. And she loved it so much that she contacted her editor at Inner Traditions and said, you got to read this. And the book was bought within days. So we were stunned. I mean, it just out of nowhere. And that gave me encouragement to finish mine. Um, and then we just kept rolling because we had we already had all this work, but it wasn't formatted into something that could be shared. So we definitely have more of this to do. Like we have more books that, that need to be finished and she's working on stuff uh, that, that reflects her style and uh, continuing her memoir and looking at life uh, as a musician in Los Angeles and Riot Girl and all that kind of stuff from a spiritual kind of angle without being corny. And and I have uh, I've got a, a several that are still in need of being finished and would like to write more and different things. We both are kind of I'll tell you, the worst thing about all this has been no time to write, man. It's like it's just always, you know, answering emails, podcasts, um, hey, just, hey. you know, doing the editing. And I love the podcast. I really <laughs> do. No, but seriously, I do because I get to meet so many intelligent, cool people and have these these great conversations. I mean, it's given me hope. I mean, truly about the future of metaphysics because you and many other people, I mean, all of them that I've met so far, and that's a lot, um, are such cool, amazing, intelligent people. And uh, it's it's a great thing. So, but, but no time, you know, then no time for music, you know, because not only do we not have time to write because we have to edit these other things that are already in process, but we also never have time to play. And I want to do, I've always wanted to do a solo record because um, I, have, I have songs and, and all that. And I've never, I've always been the guitar player. I'm allowed one or two songs on the record. <laughs> and lately I didn't get any because most people just wanted to hear her and not me, but I still want to do it. And I have all these friends who are musicians and engineers. And I would just love at some point to get us all together and have this big, fun, creative, thing and have a record come out of it, you know, but someday I hope that will happen. And I hope that something I haven't even thought of, you know, will happen. Like maybe the UFOs will come down and, uh, you know, we'll have something to, to explore there. I mean, who knows? Um, since, since you mentioned, I guess we're talking about music and frequencies. Do you still interact with music on a daily basis? Like, do you listen to a lot of music? Do you, or, or do you find that the more, I'm just curious about how your yeah. interaction with it has changed. 
I do. Um, I listen to music a lot. Um, but what's funny is, even though I try to, I try to keep up on on like everything that's going on because I'm interested in new artists. Most of it doesn't really talk to me that much, and I get these like highly specialized moods. <laughs> and lately, and for some time, and fortunately, Tamara's in the same mood. I've been all about these really rare '90s instrumental hip hop mixes. Like the really early stuff, like on straight records and okay. artists like uh, a Mighty G Poetic or, uh, you know, I mean, just stuff that nobody's heard of. And but they're so great. And the music, for some reason, because I can't listen, for example, to words like like especially good words when I'm writing. Okay. Um, and so I, that's why it's instrumental, because I also love obviously the lyrics are great in these songs, but but just also just something about the beats and the moods and the the tones that they're using that are so deeply satisfying to me right now. So I'm just soaking it in and I, I'm hoping that someday it's going to come out in, in my music. So I usually write music on guitar. And but it's the funny thing is that I I feel my music like a drummer. Right. So we'll see. I hope there's a future there somewhere around those things, because I would really enjoy that and i love gear too you know i i have friends who who i have one friend who has a studio called um god i think it's earth station and and he's just filled it with all this weird old stuff and i think there's such a so much fun like getting into a studio and and, and just sitting there with this, all this weird old gear this analog stuff and getting it to make sounds that are that are not what it was made to make kind of and it's just so much fun so i miss that and it's been a while since i've been able to do things like that so i guess i'm wondering now that you've said like you're very transparent about your schedule and like this is the thing that most people and i'm happy to talk about it now because i guess we've acknowledge that there is a metaphysical industry or it's a business or there are those people and there's some people who don't talk about their human aspect and they intentionally isolate it from their spiritual self so they can present this particular type of image and a, a it's like i feel like it's almost it's similar to if you go to a temple in another country or or even maybe a temple here in America if it's the right one. And there's someone who's a very skilled and charismatic speaker, but they're trying to bring you in as opposed to you're just, their words are sweet and you like them. Uh, they're people who are trained in this specific art. Um, so I wondered, I don't remember what I was asking now. No, I think I, I think I know what you were asking. Okay. I'll try and answer it. Um, I think that I think Manley Hall, by the way, was somebody like that, super private about his own life. Occasionally, he'd write something about his grandma or something like that, but he didn't like to talk about it. He didn't ever mention things in lectures. Very private guy. And, I, and there's certainly really good reasons for that. And it keeps things clean in a way. Um, now, I don't I'm not sure what I am, you know, like I don't see myself as a spiritual teacher. I'm just a person that shares my experiences and, and people find it helpful or, or, or they don't. And I'm not trying to establish a brand. I'm not uh, I'm not pushing any particular point of view. Um, if there's anybody who who inspires me, 
in that sense, it's uh, Stuart Edward White, who was involved in the unobstructed universe teachings, um, because they, they, they first got the teachings through experimentation just for fun, and then it turned out to be deeply profound, and they were quite anonymous at first, and, and then eventually when it was revealed that what had happened here and people like Jung and who's who and I mean just the whole world took notice and the books were bestsellers and they he and his wife who was the medium never they never did really change you know like I mean they 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 lived their lives they they didn't teach classes they didn't have built a building where everybody went to hear them talk or they, they would answer mail from people as best they could and and they were just so uh un unconcerned with impressing anyone or or being uh or profiting from what they were doing and so i find there's such a purity in their work as a result of that you don't feel any of that pressure that you can feel in some writing that's trying to sell you something um so that is one inspiration to me um i do i do think that and they also love nature they lived with a deep appreciation of of the beauties of nature and uh, and 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 help people where they could. Um, as a result, their work isn't known at all now because they didn't establish a school. Uh, they didn't have kids who carried on the copyrights. They the the books were occasionally republished, like uh, they did these like psychedelic versions in the early seventies and when the occult got popular. And but it's when I started working on on research on him, there was nothing about him on the internet, just some books that you could look at. So um, that's more my approach. That's why I, I think I don't mind talking about personal things. I just feel like we're all here. I and mean, this is a continuation, I, I guess, now that I think about it, of the, the punk ethic. I mean, I guess that's where I learned it. And then Riot Girl was all about transparency. And, and I, I'm very comfortable there. I like, there's a humility about that, in my opinion, where you're just telling the truth about your life that is there's uh i don't know it makes me feel safer somehow when i'm that way as opposed to if i try to i can give a, a more a stiffer lecture you know like you're supposed to i know how to do that but that is a a uh it's a medium you know and it is intended it's rhetorical it's intended to convince and that's not why i'm here i i want to provide information and and let people run with it. And I am, that's also why I'm willing to say I've had these experiences or I haven't had these. Cause I, I kind of feel like I wish we would all do that, you know, that, that, so these things become more common knowledge and, and more something that's part of life on a daily basis, instead of a surprise to people or something that you don't dare to talk about in front of the family, those kind of things. Uh, okay. I definitely, and I guess, a follow-up, which again, if you need to, I know I'm bombarding you a little bit. No problem. Questions, no. but the, um, good one. I've been I've been encountering a lot since we're talking about uh, metaphysical stuff and teachers and writers, uh, and myself in the situation. I guess I'm encountering a lot of interesting situations where people are either trying like where i i don't even know how to ask the question because it's related to the to manifestation um law of attraction and like uh, a lot of 
people who are popular in the new age movement like let's say neville or even um there's that ah uh, there's so many people but i guess even there's too many but i guess i'm um atkinson napoleon hill Napo- um, napoleon hill is what i was thinking about specifically okay so and let's shout out mitch horowitz for mm-hmm. all the coverage because i honestly didn't know anything till i read those books yeah it's like uh where so in your purpose where you're you're writing and are you at any point if someone's thinking like no i want to write a book like ronnie well i want to do this i want to do that is there a manifestation practice or a practical thing that you do in your head to make things happen better for you? Or are you just a doer and it's just a coincidence that it's worked out? Uh, like, are... That's a good question. Um, well, actually, the way I think about it is um, maybe best illustrated by some, an ancient Egyptian idea. Um, they had a, a goddess that represented the balance that is required for nature to function, ma'at. It's the law of balance. And Sekhmet was the defender of ma'at. She was called she who adores ma'at. So you can see, for instance, in our society, we're beginning to see the consequences of not living according to ma'at. We have done things industrially that have created massive problems for us that we need to now figure out. and and it's causing great stress for people. Um, that's because we have not lived in Ma'at. You could say that indigenous cultures did their best to live in Ma'at. They were sustainable. They respected the other uh, kingdoms of nature. I mean, even that term, right? Kingdom of nature. Um, they had a harmonious relationship instead. And so I think that, that the, for me, what I feel like is sometimes I get out of balance. And, and when I get out of balance, I might make the wrong decisions. And I have seen that happen. I, I've seen over time how that works. So it used to be that, for instance, I was very reactive to people, especially when I was a kid. I was very driven by revenge and by proving myself. And uh, I, I was motivated by negativity. So go ahead, you know, I hate me because that's going to make me do more, right, is where I was coming from liking me is even to this day a little embarrassing like i've learned to be transparent about it like thank you um i don't like feel like i own the work like a whole bunch of people together kind of including manly all made that book happen and and so i'm representing all of us when i say thank you um that makes me feel better about it um because i i used to be super uncomfortable with compliments and um now the way i feel is I can feel it, you know, you get up some days and you just, you're, it's, you're out of balance. And you know, you teach meditation, you know what I'm talking about. You feel, uh, I use the word sometimes slimed, right? Like, like, wow, this is, you know, everything feels so heavy and weird and just, this isn't, this isn't me, you know, is how I think of it. And, and then if you do spend some time, if you, if you meditate, you, you know, go sit out in the sun or go have a swim or whatever works for you, you know, and regain that balance. In the unobstructed universe teachings, the, the medium, Betty, she just used to meditate for half an hour every morning and she called it her hookup. 
her morning hookup. And she said that in order to face this world and to meet it and not to be overwhelmed by it, she had to do that. And then once she had that, she was in tune and she would bring her world into the world and, and then everything would go smoothly. So that's what I look at. Like, how do I feel? And if things start to go haywire, if, if I'm seeing that my results aren't good, I examine myself and, and my activities for, okay, has something slipped in here that's wrong? Am I, my motivation's wrong? So for example, I have found it very important to, to differentiate in what your, your intent is and what your motivation is when you're doing things, because you can do good things with bad intent and they don't turn out well. You can, you can sometimes do bad things with, with a, a certain kind of good intent and they do turn out well. It, it, it's a weird thing about the paradoxes of life. And I try to, to be very aware of that. And so it does seem when things are going good, the synchronicities really fly and, and uh, it's amazing how easy things can happen. I like life to feel that way. It doesn't always feel that way. There are limitations we all must face, including time and mortality and changes in the world that, that make everything so very different. But, but we can bring to that our own kind of inner tranquility and our, our willingness to meet the world and, and to trust that there's there's a solution out there, no matter what the situation is. I mean, I often I often say to people when I'm, I'm talking to them about problems that they're facing, especially uh, really difficult situations that it's just kind of, you know, you're, you're not going to die until you die. Like whatever's going to happen to you, unless it's we're out of here, you're going to be able to deal with it. You're going to find a solution. You're going to find help. You're going to find inspiration. You're going to find that in some way it was good for you, that it made your life go in a direction that it did need to go to. And you'll see the wisdom of it ultimately. And I don't think that's true for everybody. I think that there, there are people who act out in malicious ways like I used to. And I don't know what, you know, they probably get what I got, which is the consequences of their actions. But but for people who mean well and who are trying to live mindfully, I do think that that if you have that feeling and so this goes back to what you were asking about the changing in world and UFOs and what if we're now we're in this big, big, different world. And, and it, it's it's really whatever is going to happen, we are we're there to meet it. We're there with our love. We're there for our love for the loved ones. We're there for our love for just a, a miraculous experience of life, which is a mystery in itself. And it's this amazing drama, this artistic creation that we're all involved in. If we can stay in that place, we can't avoid all suffering, I don't think. I mean, you see points in history where where no matter who you were, you were going to get swept up in the maelstrom. And this comes back to Ukraine, right, and what you were saying. Um, it's it's a devastating thing, and, and it's impacting the whole world. And And what is the way out of it, right? You know, it's losers on every side, basically, the way this has played out. And and what is is actually going on there is sure we have you know Russia's doing what Russia's doing and and Russia's been screwing with Crimea for centuries. I mean this stuff goes so far back. They Stalin massacred I mean so many Ukrainian farmers. I mean it's it's Russia has a long history of turmoil around Ukraine and and the U.S. has been manipulating 
you know, through proxy wars and such for for decades. And, I don't know um, what you're talking about. They would never do such a thing. <laughs> it's for the good of liberty and democracy, damn it. Um, so and it's funny because it's, I think of it as kind of a, you don't really have enough faith in democracy you all like you won't, you won't have a democracy or the famous saying democracy. It's a great idea. I usually said about Christianity. Um, <laughs> but, but the thing is, if we can, uh, in our own individual worlds, bring a, a more tranquil perspective uh, this is something that John Trudell used to always talk about. Uh, if if John Trudell was a, an American Indian movement activist and a wonderful poet, he was part of the original Occupy Alcatraz movement. And uh, I had some wonderful opportunities to sit with him and talk and brilliant, brilliant man. And he his point of view was that essentially uh, the authorities, the elite, whatever you want to call it, the people who control stuff and want to stay in control. They're rich people, but it's not quite that. But you know what I mean. And I'm not saying that there's some big cabal. I mean, just human nature, right? You're saying you know? a lot of buzzwords. And I know. I know. That's, like, why, that's why I have to put... You're, you're on a roll. <laughs> right, exactly. So um, the the whole um, idea that that um, that we have to someone's going to suffer right you know i'm going to have everything i want but other people they're not going to have everything they want because they don't deserve it the way i do that whole dynamic which goes back to the robber baron the, the american uh, romance with the robber baron mystique right our last president is a robber baron essentially um so and a time traveler apparently we'll talk about that Oh, tell me what's up with that. Wait, you don't know about that? No. There. Oh, what? I. I feel guilty that I'm the one telling you this. Not at all. I feel like it's this is not good. Um, well. Well, I will look it up, but I like to. I'd like to get a. Uh... There's a book, from I believe it's a Victorian era novel, called. The Travels and Adventures of Little Baron Trump and his wonderful. Oh, yeah. Google. No, I have run into that. Yes. Yeah, that's wild, isn't it? It's bizarre. I it's bizarre. Know, I don't yeah. know what it means. I know, right? It's one it's again, it's one of those things that those mysteries that that defy explanation. Um well, so, so it's it, Trump though, as a human being. Like if he maybe he's two guys in a suit. You know, he's so typical in a way. I mean uh, that's true. It's such a type. And, you know, I mean, he is. And America has been so in love with that type for for a long time. I don't think, hopefully, God, that younger generations are not anymore. But for the long, I mean, I always used to, as a kid, it blew my mind the way that, like, even hippies were, they were so into, like, even though they said they weren't, but they're, they're, they were just John Wayne. They were all, like, into this, like, swaggering kind of, you know, thing. And, and the, the same sexual misogyny, the same, uh, you know, I get mine, screw you, the same, I use humor to deflate you and to uh, belittle you. I mean, I ran into that so much uh, and, 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 and admiration of that, right, of, of stars, celebrities who, who 
that was considered to be now that's a man right that's a manly man that's a sexy man mm. it's such an old-fashioned weird and it's weird that you mentioned the the hippie thing because even the the counterculture and even the psychedelic movement it's to me it's very odd and i'm not like obviously why i speak ill of the dead but there is a level of like uh what i'm seeing from like early psychedelic pioneers is that they were basically there were guys who were partying yeah for lack of a better like and the women who were seeking the same truths at the time in the world weren't given the space to do that yeah so like and it's kind of i don't know even that is strange to me to look back at like when i'm looking for sources of information on psychedelics or spiritual teachings and it's always coming from the perspective of like some iconic charismatic figurehead of a subject i'm just like why are you always like this like why yeah. isn't there that's an excellent it's, observation and, it's, and it's still that way i mean look you know um when tamara was writing for reality sandwich she was like their main interviewer and reality sandwich even at that point was still the vehicle for the burning man culture as far as online writing and so the editor ken jordan approached her and said hey we'd like you to do a series of interview based features about the festival circuit so tamra put out the word all through the various message boards and and uh groups about I'm writing this for Reality Sandwich, and here's a link to me. And you know, if you're interested in talking to me about your experiences in the festival culture, please get in touch. I think because of her Riot Girl background, we were inundated with sexual abuse stories and rape stories. It was it was terrible. Yeah. And so here was this this supposedly wonderful egalitarian, safe new culture, and and all of a sudden, and by the way, so. Tamara turns around and says to the editor, unless you want me to make this into an expose about sexual abuse at the festivals, I can't write this. And she said, by the way, there are some really important people involved in the festivals who are, I'm hearing their names. And like within a week or so, one of the main guys in the scene came public and said, I've, I've been abusing women and I'm sorry. And I mean, it was intense. And so that's, this is now we're talking about 2000s, 2010s, actually. Um, and it's still that bad, right? It's still supposed to be, let's go another step, right? And talk about who's behind the legalization, who's spending the most money toward legalization, right? Why, why do you have, can't you just be, can't we just talk about the, the, the crystals, Ronnie? <laughs> why did you, yes, you're at this, Okay, so now this, I guess the deeper we go into this rabbit hole of who is legalizing, and then it's, if you go further and look at the entire system supporting the legalization, it's like the manufacturing process and everything else. It's like, it's going to become its own cottage industry and then its own giant industry. And then before you know it, like, you can you'll be buying LSD gummies at the gas station and it won't be a big deal, which I really do feel like that's where this will go because 
it seems like there's no limit to greed. And with I'm seeing it with psilocybin already. There's just also isn't it it's a control thing i think on a level because look i mean this is a i was just talking about this with someone it's okay yeah let's go back and say yes you're right those those guys in the early days of psychedelics were basically going girls would you like to try some acid you know what to do um that's that's where girls's place was it's you know you, yes. you look good on my arm and and so um now what is it now there's there was one virtue to that right which was at least it was fun that the 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 vibrancy of sexuality was infused in it and of discovery and of of play right now isn't it really about um take this and then you can go back to your shitty job and be happy that's literally 100 percent what it's like i feel like at this point if you go to like there's specific times and I hate, I bring this up because I've been in the same place, but you can go to a dispensary, a cannabis dis dispensary at like 11 or where a lunch break would be. And there are people there on their lunch break, desperately trying to get back in various uniforms that every, uh, from every walk of life. Yeah. And it's just like, I do respect cannabis and psilocybin and partake in all these things, but at the same time, it's starting to, it feels tainted a little bit. It and it's dangerous. Like... I mean, that's the other thing is that is they are manipulating. I mean, I'm, I'm always concerned about the quality of, of what is out there. And especially if you're not going through the dispensaries, because we can, again, we can talk about the degradation of drugs in general, the selection of recreational drugs that were available in the 60s and 70s versus what's available now. And so much of what's available now, besides just being simply opiates, is is tainted with fentanyl, yes. whether it's weed or, or anything else. So it, it's a terrible, I mean, I think it's so, what really sucks is I think, you know, the kids, it's like, like, what do you got, you know, like your grandparent, they had the best, according to the people I talked to, like Arthur Johnson, who I mentioned, they were just like, we had all the great drugs, screw you, you missed it, you know, ha ha. And, and then at least you could still in the 90s, you could still get, you could get some pretty decent stuff. And it was still somewhat recreational, maybe there was a little too much meth and heroin going on, but there was still a lot of other things. But then as it started to get into the fentanyl thing, and they, they really put down a lot of, of the more recreational drugs, and made some of them illegal to the point of making them disappear, uh, like quaaludes, for example, um, then we wind up now with kids who are either out there just saying, I just want to opiate myself and, and I may die. Yeah. And, I... and you used to have choices, right? I could go up, I could go down. I could have a psychedelic experience. I could have a, a shroom one. I could have, you know, there was a whole bunch of different approaches to trying these substances that affect the psyche. And now it seems that it's just been reduced to this kind of dangerous sham in comparison to what it was and even when you're talking about strains of weed besides the the obvious how power, much more powerful it is just to stay on top of all the different processes and which one is the safe one and it, it's become a much more complicated world but if you walk into that shop like you described it's like a toy store yeah right? all it, the little products all the labels all the stuff it's like a supermarket aisle yeah it does it seems like, I guess I feel weird saying it out loud, but it seems like something even, 
even like I, uh, even ketamine therapy, mm -hmm. that's, it's like, I know, I guess we'll talk about it like this and set there, there, as you know, their level of levels of celebrities and when the top level of celebrity in an industry starts doing something, the lowest rung tries to emulate that. And I feel like I've heard a few mainstream celebrities mention that they're basically on intravenous ketamine consistently, like constantly in their life. Wow. And I'm seeing that there's a trend that these ketamine clinics aren't, which they have their value. Of course, there's healing there, but people are just staying on it. Like it's just a, just another escape from the, not the reality that doesn't change. So you need to go somewhere else for a bit. And yeah, um, yeah. yeah exactly. It, it's like they've removed the revolution from it, right? Like, yes. Like these yeah. things were, were revolution in a substance and they've now reduced it down to being this utilitarian thing that enables us to cope. And it's like to cope with with making more money to continue like it's that's why i guess when we i asked about pro your process in creating mm -hmm. obviously and i don't mean we're not getting specific about you but anyone else it seems like the spiritual journey is hinged upon how much abundance there is in your life whether it's abundance of time abundance of willpower even like let's say someone's not eating enough or properly they don't usually have the will to spiritually seek they're just like i can't even stay awake i'm just working and sleeping yeah. i barely eat so i guess at the sake of like putting obviously this is your worldview isn't everyone else's but if someone wanted to create more can sorry. you hold on one second yes. i have I'll to take check your... something i'll be yeah. right with you no you're good okay. sorry you're about good. this no this is exciting <laughs> I'm hearing someone knocking at the door. Take your time. It might be the police. Um, so while Ronnie's gone, this is my first time alone on the podcast for a while. I'm going to leave it on. I'm going to leave it in here. My eyes look bigger without my beard. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you can hear my stomach. But Ronnie's little thing set up is very nice. But I think he's on the floor, isn't he? should ask him how does he sit so long with his legs crossed maybe he got an amazon package <clears throat> all right i apologies no it's okay i was talking about a lot of things and i didn't realize that you were on the floor till just now yes i am <laughs> were you were you on the floor last time yeah i always do I was I was just confused. I was <laughs> I we were wait, is everything okay? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We were expecting a delivery of uh actually everything's not okay. Our fridge died. <laughs> now we're expecting a new one. And so I heard somebody slamming on the door and I had to check. What's it the fridge? I don't know, but but Tamara's taking care of it, so I feel okay. Hopefully it's the fridge. <laughs> yes. I feel like but it's, it's crazy that that's even, see how you just said everything's fine, but actually the fridge isn't okay. It's not, exactly. it's kind of okay, but I'm just saying it's interesting that we wouldn't hear about, I don't know. I guess we didn't really hear about 
Ram Das's fridges, fridge issues to later in life, but then he became more transparent about this. But well, isn't uh, part of that the male? I mean, I think that it's part of what you're describing as male vanity, right? Like when males present themselves, you know, every woman in the place, if they like women, have to want them. You know, it's this weird thing that charismatic leaders have. And so you can't talk about your fridge. You've got, you've got to be up there saying profound pearls of wisdom or you're going to lose them. Yeah, but it's funny <laughs> because where did that come? It seems like even reading, um, and this is something that I feel like was left out of secret teachings because it's such a spanning work the personalities of the people involved in the narrative aren't really mentioned like yeah. let's say even let's just talk about the base like the the tri the aristotle plato socrates the little yeah everyone's favorite group of people on earth right. uh, they, they were like drunk like guys hanging out spending most of the day just hanging out mm -hmm. and because of some form of authority that's repackaged their words it's now presented as the works of some scholarly like nobility that was mm -hmm. like considered the peak of society but at the at the time if a kid they're they kind of scum at the time right yes. i mean yeah i'm so confused like if a child said i want to be a philosopher the parents would be like are you insane like, yeah what do you mean like well aristophanes right i mean that's the best for that stuff i mean clouds and and just yeah. his whole you know I, I want you to be a philosopher so you can learn how to cheat people <laughs> you know that stuff and um, no no go on I was just going to say the Greeks were so funny about about uh, satirizing Plato, and I love that point of view on him as well. And um, I also love Tamara's point of view on Plato. She calls him a bitter queen. <laughs> it, and it seems like that maybe gets transferred or got transferred to his students a little bit as well, like a chip on their shoulder. Yeah. And I don't, and I guess what I'm when you describe the male vanity thing, I'm wondering, it seems like the mass, the mastery of that energy is like what leads to someone. We could step back on the other side, but right now it seems like we're on the other side of that toxic manifestation of masculinity. But what is there a positive version of that? where like the masculine stubbornness or rigidity can be used to do something good? Or is it something that should be quelled? And like, I don't know. Wow, what a good question. Well, I think, I mean, it, it depends. First of all, it depends on circumstance. Um, but toxicity, I don't know if that's ever got a place because let's, let's consider war, right? Where you would think, yeah, get me a toxic get me the most toxic guy you can to win this war for me but as we can see from japanese culture for example that the most skilled killer is not going to be toxic it's going to be somebody who's ready to die who is a great appreciator of the moment who is going to uh have become highly skilled through study and practice and who ideally is actually a person of high attainment. There's a, a beautiful 
well, there's a phrase, uh, mono no aware in Japanese. It's just one of my favorite concepts. And it's about the beauty of the temporariness of things, the, the beauty of imperfection. And Japanese culture is saturated with this kind of melancholy and yet uh, sweet experience of appreciating uh, temporality. And so there's a famous uh, Japanese story about a samurai who uh, is in the midst of one of their endless civil wars. And he sees someone whose armor indicates that he's a prince who has, has been isolated and basically trapped and has ridden off toward the beach and is, is there on the beach uh, while a huge troop of the enemy is is riding toward him to slaughter him. And the samurai watches, and this prince is his enemy. But the prince picks up his flute, which he's carried with him into battle, which is not uncommon, and he starts to play. And he plays the most beautiful, haunting melody. And this samurai is moved to tears. And he records that what he's thinking is, what are we doing? This is the flower of Japanese civilization. Look at this young man. This is everything we want our sons to be, but they're going to kill him. And then he decides, I'll kill him. He should at least die by my hand. And then when he goes up to the prince, the prince understands what's happening and says, do it, you know, rather that it be you. And he's forced to kill him. And he's overwhelmed with this emotion of loss and yet the beauty of life and the poignancy of all of it. So the best warriors are not toxic either. So I don't think toxic masculinity, I don't know if it has a place anywhere. I think it's, it's run, it's just, it's just, let's cure it if we can. But masculinity is something else. Uh, we do need strong men. We do need even men who are capable of, of uh, you know, suppressing emotions is not a bad thing in some situations. There's some kinds of jobs where it's necessary to uh, repress normal reactions, normal emotional reactions. And men seem to be pretty good at that. Not that women can't do it, too. But uh, I, I don't know. I, I find that um, men, I mean, my experience in Riot Girl. Wow, man. I mean, you know, I've been through PRS and I, I thought I was I was a person of some slight attainment. And when I got in that that world and I and this talk about transparency, these girls were 100 percent honest about what they were experiencing in their lives and were super eloquent in their self-expression. And I got to see what it was like to be a young woman in our society. It was a fucking nightmare. I mean, I was stunned and. Uh, and, and then you go after, I played many Riot Girl conventions. So, you know, it ha you go into one in LA and you go, well, it's LA. And then you go to Santa Barbara, it's the same story. You go to Portland, it's the same story. You go to Seattle, it's the same story. I mean, and you realize, man, men are, and then I saw it in myself. You know, I saw all these qualities that I had that, that Riot Girl helped me get rid of because I became aware of them that I just thought were, you know, well, I'm a man. That's how men do things. So I do think that that we need a radical awakening. And I do think it's happening. I think that there is a new kind of uh, in the younger generations, there are men who are much different. Um, in, and maybe it's not that they're different from earlier generations, but the percentages are different. There have always been men who had a more 
uh, what Jung might call individuated, more androgynous, because Jung thought that androgyny was what happens the higher you get up the scale of evolution. And... It does seem like there's some version of that that occurs, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I don't know what, because I, I literally, I feel like it, at the sake of sounding like a bizarre, like a little crazy, when it starts happening, it's very unnerving because you don't know what's happening to you because that strong masculine identity that seems to be also associated with secondary chemicals in your body. Yep. You're like, wait, that isn't me at all. What is that? I don't yeah. even, I still don't understand what that mindset is and how it's even pre-programmed into our body. Like, why is it, why do we have the capacity to be like that? Right. Yeah. Well, I think it was, it did serve the, the purpose of survival of the species for a long time um, where, you know, there was a time when, when sensitive warriorship wasn't going to be effective simply because it was a mass of people charging each other, trying to kill each other. That's why there were civilizations like the Macedonians, especially the Thracians, who would get drunk to go into battle, right? Because they were like, well, I'm more ferocious when I'm drunk. And, um, but once that shifted from these mass sort of hack people up battles into more subtle forms of warfare, I think that it became less effective. The toxicity was also very effective in pushing industrialization, right? And in, in making choices that were very painful for groups of people. And, and so what does this bring us to? The question of, I'm sure you've seen the articles that say that, that CEOs of companies tend to have a high degree of narcissism and even of psychotic behavior. Um, there, are, there are those who theorize that, that part of the problem that we're facing in society today is leadership by narcissists, by crazy people who, who don't care about anybody else but their own goals. And they're going to do what they're going to do and manipulate and lie. And, and as long as they succeed, they're okay with it. And we see leadership like that all around the world. And um, we've had it ourselves. And, and so this kind of, of um, it, what is it, you know, like, is that, is it the price of civilization? You know, it used to be considered that. We admired the ruthless robber barons because they were pushing us forward in Russia Kids were taught to love Stalin, even though he may be the greatest mass murderer in history, because he forced us to become civilized and he made us into a power in the world. There was this belief that these strong, toxic men were what you needed. That, you know, your father figure was supposed to be that way. I think my dad thought that. I think he thought he was supposed to be like that. He was supposed to be tough and mean and non-emotional. And um, if, he, if he showed kindness, it had to come with, with a squint, right? And so I don't think that's, I mean, it's so sick, man. I mean, as somebody who spent my whole life, you know, trying to be an effective ally to women and being around women, women are brilliant. Women are strong. Women deserve a chance to try and run this shit. I mean, we've screwed everything up pretty good for a long time. And, and I think that, that men who can work with women who are, uh, in a sense of, uh, well, I'll tell you, Manley Hall said in the 1950s, he, he wrote something uh, to the effect of paraphrasing it, that, that if there is a woman with vision in the life of a man, following that vision and helping her to achieve it is always the highest 
possible dedication and always will be. I blew my mind when I read that, by the way, that he had written that in the 1950s was amazing to me. I mean, that's a pretty feminist statement coming from someone who barely ever made any statements about that kind of thing. Yes. It may have very much been influenced by Marie Hall, who I think he might have just met at that point. But nevertheless, he did say it. And it's been my experience that that's true. And so I've often put aside my own ambitions in order to support Tamara. So for example, when we went back and started to do music after PRS, she just wanted to play bass. She didn't want to play guitar or sing and never even, I mean, she, she was just, no, I don't do that. You know, you're the singer, you do it. But as we got into Riot Girl and we got into punk rock and then she got emboldened and then she started singing and then she discovered that everybody liked her, not me, <laughs> and that everybody wanted, wanted her to be the singer and they wanted to interview her. She got, she turned into a different person. She blossomed into this powerful presence who, who could say amazing things. And, uh, and it's been, it, it was a total blast. And I think I might've said this to you in our last meeting. The weirdest thing for me has been adjusting to me being up front now because I, I loved it. I loved holding my guitar and standing back there and just watch her go. I mean, just for example, one of the best, uh, she could deal with hecklers like nobody. I mean, she was hilarious. She would win over hecklers because the things that she said were so funny in reaction to their heckles. Um, she was just so strong up on stage, you know, when facing hostile audiences. And um, I had a blast being with her and backing up her activities. And um, and then when when suddenly my book came out and, and I was out there doing the podcast and everything, and she was really happy. She was like, great, I don't have to do this because she finds interviews more uncomfortable. And so it took some getting used to, man. I mean, I I loved being invisible, actually. I, I really, I liked that. I liked helping. I liked being supportive. I think we need more men like that. I know a lot of them. And I think that there are a lot of men doing this who are sort of almost like karmically fixated on how do I help the women? You know, what do I do to help women that I admire who I want to succeed? And, you know, a lot of fathers who are very concerned about being the right kind of father for their daughters. And I do think this is different, even down to another difference that I'm hearing about. And I hope it's true is that uh, parents are less likely now to to say, well, we're Christian and you're going to be raised Christian just like we were, even if we don't believe in it, because that's what we do. They're much more likely to tell their kids, try them all out, pick out what you like, we'll support you, whatever you decide. That's revolutionary. You know, that's not something that was going on in the last few generations. Um, and so I, I hope that that in this kind of new, more sensitive male approach, I don't know if sensitive is really the right word there again, it, like imagination, <laughs> it has that taint, right? Not sensitive, what do you mean sensitive? <laughs> Um, but yet that's what we mean, right? I mean, it's, 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 we're, we should all be in this together. And that's the thing that ultimately that my book, uh, taught me that made me really one of the great paradoxes of the world, man, that still just puzzles me is like, how come there's what, I don't even know how many 500 cults of Christians, you know, there's Catholics and God knows how many Protestant ones and nobody agrees with everything. They all hate each other. They all criticize each other. They all say that they're wrong. There's, there's most of the people in the world are patriarchal monotheists. 
but they're divided into these big groups who don't want anything to do with each other, who only ally to make war or to screw the other group, um, and on and on. And and men and women, men and women, right? Like it's this thing, you know, there used to be comics, their whole thing was just that, was putting down women and talking about what they're like. And Oh no, you just, you, you opened a whole new can of worms Did I? in comedy. You okay. mentioned comics and that whole, it, I don't know if you know this, but I'm just going to, and I'll leave it, I'll put it out there and then we'll see if it like manifest shows up in your life again. But in the same field that this podcast exists in and your your literature exists in and your past with Manly Hall, in that same field, now there are quite a few prolific comedians who are also spiritual figureheads and have podcasts and other, they do retreats. Yeah. And it's, it's not, they're like a, is it Heyoka? Is that how you say it? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of like that, but at the same time, it's like, they're the same people who have been involved in like, the development of like a pretty misogynistic culture and now they're they're like oh yeah but i did ayahuasca and i'm good now i swear it's all good i can it's uh it's very hard to accept sometimes like when like this conversation when you said comedy i immediately started thinking of all the comedians who give out spiritual like deep spiritual guidance which i i respect but it's just confusing i don't know where we live anymore well, you think of Hicks. I mean, he's a good example. I think of somebody doing it maybe the right way. I don't know. Although he, he's basically smoked himself to death, but but he was really deep. But he wasn't selling it. You know, he oh, was okay. he was talking about his own experiences. And I I still feel I know people have to make a living. I think there's no reason why they shouldn't profit from teaching people stuff. It's but there's still something about the whole fetish for branding in our culture right now that rubs me the wrong way and maybe that's because of my punk diy thing it it, it it just feels so corporate to me so fake you know it's it's funny though you're saying punk diy but if we were to explain this to like it's basically primitive it's like it's more it's just the way of being like it's mm-hmm. like i'm not saying everyone's a punk but all humans in their baby essence when they're born they are a punk like they're completely anarchistic like poop is on the walls there's no respect for anything Mm -hmm. but then there's something happens where the respect needs to be established so like for me with i dare say with my son there's only love but there's zero he's 11 there's Mm -hmm. almost zero kind of disciplinary respect like sometimes if i say his name loud he starts crying because i've never like that's right. the level of strictness he's encountered for me. So I just say his name. He's like, why are you saying my name like that? I don't yeah. know. I, and I feel like, so it's hard for me to, I'm not the best person to discern what the right time is to do that. But I feel like when you said punk, your punk DIY thing, that seems to be how you were prior to Riot Girl when you were born, like as a baby. And then something happened that made you go in more. 
Right. So I guess, I don't know. I just, I think it's interesting. Well, it's, you know, my experience of punk, you know, punk is such a weird word. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't it, mean. It could it. refer to anything. I mean, it's, there's so many, I mean, I knew Nazi punks used to come and try and break up our shows and, you know, what and they pre-existed Riot Girl punk. So they could, they could claim the space, you know. You bring up the best and worst things. <laughs> Why? Why do you bring up, what, what? Nazis ruin everything. Twitter, mm -hmm. punk, anything they just yeah. show up anyway please continue yeah. well there it's um going back to punk the the punk that i was involved with um first riot girl and then the anarcho punk movement was so idealistic so i mean they were they were so awesome they really were they were they people deeply cared and were genuine and, and honest and trying to to live this kind of higher quality of ethic in a way and um, I'll give you an example. It's a silly one, but it's kind of funny. Um, so Tamara was always uh, unwilling to cut her hair. She has long blonde hair. She's partly way, way, I mean, tiny, inty tiny bit Cherokee, uh, a chief on the, the Trail of Tears. And, and she, she knew about that. And she has always identified, never identified herself as, but has often had strong feelings of identification with indigenous culture in general. It makes sense to her. I mean, she's the kind of person, the first time she ever was taken to a church, she cried, she hated it. And she made such a fuss that they never tried to bring her back. She just said that the, seeing this hanging guy on a cross was the grossest thing she ever saw. And she was just like, why, why are you bringing me here? And so, but she could ride a horse before she could walk. Um, so in a weird way, she was, she was kind of indigenousy. And, yeah. and so she didn't, she, yeah. So she didn't want to, to cut her hair. She was like, and in punk, especially in riot girl, girls generally did not wear long hair. Long hair was considered a luxury. It was something that you did for men. It was uh, a symbol of, of enslavement almost, but she was going to do what she was going to do. And that was it. And we did get a lot of trouble, especially in riot, <clears throat> excuse me, in riot girl, a lot of hassle for her. Um, then we get into anarcho-punk and it, I think our second show, it was like this little um, group of, of anarcho-punks came walking up to her with their patches and her mohawks and everything. And they said, we just, we just wanted to come here and to, to tell you that we understand how punk it is for you to wear your blonde hair in our scene. I mean, but is that the cutest thing ever? Right? That is, it's that's just, amazing. I, isn't it? I was not, I was expecting like, kind of like the story of how you guys met, like you would have to like step in and there would be mm -mm, some. No, they were so sweet. And, uh, and then that whole scene was so amazing, man. There was an experience there I'll share with you. That was just so great. There was this, this guy named Sharif Abdullah, who when he was 16 years old was the defense minister for the Black Panthers in Los Angeles. And we met him when he was in his 30s. And the guy who organized these shows that we used to play at a famous anarchist cafe called Coos, uh, his name was Jay Lee, he's now called Peace Punk. And, and he would do these shows, you know, Riot Girls, Anarcho Punks, Black Panthers, he'd get everybody together. And the Panthers were told, you're going to go play a punk show in OC. And they were like, oh, really? Okay. You know, so they marched in like military style. It was really dramatic because they thought this is going to be a bunch of white, racist, redneck idiots. And so they socialized and they were kind of going, well, these kids are kind of nice. I don't know. And then Sharif got up to talk 
and he started out he, he was like okay how many of you kids here think that the black panthers are about violence raise your hand not one hand went up oh and, the- and he went oh come on man <laughs> he was like be honest and he went raise your hand if you think the black panthers are about violence and then he looked at every single one of us man he just started on the left and he looked at every single punk. I watched his face change. And by the time he was looking on the right, he was had a grin like out to here. And then he said, he just kind of stepped back and he said, wow. He said, I just want to thank all of you. He said, this is one of the most amazing experiences of my life as a revolutionary. And and ever since that, I mean, like it was just France I mean, the Black Panthers, like put our record out. They put our zine out to prisons all over the Western U.S. I mean, they were so kind to us. We actually played Black Panther headquarters. And um, so that kind of unity, see, I saw it. You know what I mean? Like like seeing that, seeing people from such different backgrounds, such different approaches. And they all found this this beautiful resonance with each other in this little punk scene. So when I say punk, it's kind of, I I really should explain it because it's not the kind of punk most people think of. These were people who were carrying a certain standard of, of wanting humanity to be better. And they were, they were so amazing to be around. They were all concerned about being vegan and animal liberation and, and feminism and, and just, you know, they were looking out for everybody kind of. And when things happened, like, for example, somebody came around and stole a radio out of a car in the parking lot, they all got together and organized and they, they caught the guy. And um, it was just cool. And they would feed homeless people at the shows, right? They would always add a kitchen and they would make up all this food. And when we weren't playing, they would be like, go in the, go in the kitchen, and peel the, the potatoes for the soup, right? So that was a, a beautiful scene. And, and I, I really think of it a lot when I think about the potential of, of what could happen out there. Now, the sad thing about it is that we were all singing about warning about religious autocracies and people like Trump and, and political chicanery that was taking away our rights and that women, you know, don't trust that you're going to be able to keep the right to choice. They're, they're going to take it from you if they can. And all those things were things that we talked about and wrote about. And once in a while, I'll get a letter from somebody from back then, an email or something, and they'll just say, you know, hey, how's it feel to have been right about everything? <laughs> you know? yeah. I guess I do want, I do wonder how, like when you say the people give you hope or mm-hmm. you feel hopeful about things from a, it's interesting that 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 hope isn't it's surprising it's not like a common thing that people have like uh, let's and i'm not saying like an opinion based thing like let's say the people who are involved in things like insurance or uh, the medical industry their forecasts for the future are not uh pleasant mm-hmm. and they're not based in some kind of like they're not fanciful notions those are people Mm -hmm. who are greedy and they're money-minded so it's interesting that we live in this kind of strain i don't know what kind of time this is it's very confusing and you're writing well it's just about to change i mean that's that's the thing i think that um you know let's talk for a moment especially since we mentioned um your 11 year old um 
about Pluto and the generations. And so Pluto, um, and I've, I've really been looking at this for a long time, so I find it so fascinating. Uh, let's start with um, just a brief outline of, of Pluto and the signs that have happened uh, that with people that are still alive today. So Pluto and Cancer, not many of them left. They were the World War II generation. They were all about family and nation and patriotism and mine's better than yours and we've got to fight it out. And their kids were Pluto and Leo. And they were all about, look at me, let's have fun. It's all about me. And, and they want to get the, the best deal out of life, if you will. They want to be worshipped by life, you know. I always think of Mick Jagger wearing the, the Leo sigil on his shirt back in the 70s. And I've seen that. then came the Virgo generation, punk rock, um, snide, uh, critical, um, looking at the Leo kids and going, right, you know, and uh, and and they were a little um, a little on the materialistic side and and much less motivated uh, by concepts like patriotism or uh, or even just the, the hippie idea of, you know, let's have fun and change the world. That, they weren't buying into it. This is the Sex Pistols talking about there's no future, right? Then you get the Libra kids. This is, this is going to become more arty and, and things kind of develop into a uh, very, everybody's concerned about relationships, right? And, and, and then you get Pluto and Scorpio. And this is like, uh, this is when Prince is a success. And you've got Madonna and it's everything's sexy and everybody's into being sexy. And that's the whole deal. Pluto and Sagittarius came around and all of a sudden it was all stock market and money and the internet. And we're going to make money. We'll never stop making money. It just keeps going up and up and up. And it was a glorious time. I mean, I remember at one point I bought like, like a hundred shares of Amazon and it turned into like, you know, 6,000 in a matter of a year. You know, it was just split, split, split. It was crazy. Um, people thought it would go on forever. And it was just, you know, this trajectory was up, up, up. So Sagittarius, right? You know, just hot air and optimism. And 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 you kind of know it's not going to work out, but so what? You know, we're going to have a great time while we're doing it. Pluto and Capricorn comes around right away. I mean, within like a week or something of Pluto going into Capricorn, the entire system collapsed economically in 2008. And so now everybody's going, oh my God, what's gonna happen now? We don't know. And now it's all of a sudden, instead of hot air, hot air, it's facts, just the facts. And ever since then, it's been pretty gnarly. It's been Saturn has been in charge, Pluto and Capricorn. And we've had all the things that are typical of Pluto and Capricorn, political turmoil, uh, proxy war, uh, plague, uh, these are all things that occur, weather changes, disruption to distribution. These things have occurred historically when Pluto is in Capricorn. Also, old men running the world, right? Putin, Biden, I mean, can we not find Trump? Can we not find somebody who's a little younger to get into office and in, in these positions of power in the world? Also, the desire for uh, autocracy, people who support it, but also people who want it. So in China, I'm going to be leader for life, you know, and Trump wanted to be leader for life. And um, now we're, we just had this spring, we only have it for a few more weeks, Pluto and Aquarius. Just got a taste of it. And some interesting things did happen, um, I think. And 
you do see some some shifts. I'm not saying anything that we should be greatly optimistic about, but we see this this like the fear of the new technology suddenly reared up in a big way. Everybody's talking about AI. We see that suddenly Teflon Trump, who never really got in trouble, he finally got convicted for something. Um, and there's little things like that going on that have that Aquarian, the people are more important than the elite kind of quality to it. Well, in June, we're going to go back to Pluto and Capricorn for a while, and then we'll go into Pluto and Aquarius in next year, and it will be there for 20 years. And I think Pluto and Aquarius will be the most dramatic changes in human history. And when we talk about UFOs, we talk about AI, we talk about uh, robotics, this is when it's going to occur with a vengeance. And I think many ideas of how things will happen will be proven wrong. Some of it will be worse than we expect, some of it will be better than we expect. But I don't think that we're going to be able to predict with much accuracy because it's, it's ruled by Uranus. The, the essence of Uranus is shock and unpredictability, the shock and unpredictability of new technology. And that's what we're going to be living with. So what about the generations themselves? So you described your 11 year old as someone who, because of discipline and the way you've applied or not applied it, gets emotionally reactive when you raise your voice, feels really feels it. That's not entirely because of your style that this is a Pluto and Capricorn kid. And, and I, I really, I feel for this generation in a big way, but they're going to be something special. Um, they say in astrology that the last three signs are what they call higher quadrant. And they say that that higher level souls incarnate through those last three signs. Actually, it's the four, but Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius, Pisces, but especially those three. And this is what we're talking about. It's not the sign, but the Pluto sign, right? So um, Pluto and Capricorn kids are ruled by Saturn and they're, they're like, they're like little old people almost in a way, like they're, yeah. they're so serious. They're so right. And they, and they've grown <laughs> up, they've grown up in a really weird, difficult world of stressed out adults and scary shit all over the place. And, you know, they could die if they, they, they do the wrong thing. And they're serious, man. <laughs> they're serious little guys, you know? So I don't think they need to be treated like with a Sagittarius Pluto and Sag kid, the Pluto and Sag kids are the ones that are doing the, the, the street takeovers. Um, we first notice them in the news and they're like, um, they're out there like so they would, I don't know if you remember this, but they would like get on the trains and they would like suddenly appear on a train. They beat each other up and they'd all jump off the train at the next stop. It was like this weird theater they were doing. And um, and then now the big thing is, you know, we, we drive our fast cars around and, and it's scary we could die. And then we go grab all the shit out of a 7-Eleven without paying for it. And everybody gets pissed off at us. It's great. You know, smash and grab. Um, very Pluto and Sag. I think they're incredibly civilized, man, because, wow, because of the, the shit sandwich they've been handed and they're ruled, you know, by by Jupiter. I mean, they. they they could be a lot of trouble and they seem to be to be pretty pretty civilized in comparison to the leo generation for example which would be the next harmonic from them who even though it was all about you know a percentage of them were out there being hippies they also had the sla and they had all kinds of violence and bombings going on and such and of course there is an element of the pluto and sag generation that has embraced 
the white supremacist ideas or the incel ideas about overturning society. I just don't see that, you know, Pluto cap kids are going to be the ones that kind of clean it up. The way I look at it is all the generations, Pluto and Scorpio and back, we're just, we screwed it up. Like we, we, we had our chance. We didn't really do enough. We, 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 we kind of hand the world to them and go, okay, it's a flaming shit bag, but you know, good luck to you. I think the Pluto and Sag kids are going to be like, they're going to be like, I'm a citizen of the world. I want I don't believe in things like, you know, your country. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to travel. I want to be free. And I believe in a future. It's going to be okay. We're going to figure it out. We're going to be able to do it. They're Jupiter, you know. But the Pluto and Cap kids, the kids growing up under them, are the ones going, no, yeah. you're just as stupid as the other guys, right? They're like, you're just doing what you want and you don't care. They're going to be the ones, Pluto and Capricorn, your kid and his generation are the ones who are going to grow up and go, all right, now we got to roll up our sleeves. We got to do what's necessary. We got to figure this out. We got to we got to restructure this whole thing and make it work. And I always tell people in my personal life, when people are complaining about that generation and for various reasons, you know, oh, they're so weak or they're so, uh, you know, I mean, just ridiculous things considering what they face during their lifespan. And I always say, always say, be careful how you treat them. Because ultimately, they will be making the decisions about what difficult things need to be done so that society can return to some sort of a healthy state. And if we teach them to be cruel and unfeeling, if we teach them by our own actions that they don't matter, then they will gladly turn around and treat us the same way with the added uh, power of the feeling that Man, I had it when I was a kid. Maybe you did. I don't know. But, you know, when I was a kid, I felt like you all are just wrong. And what you're doing to nature and to each other and everything else is it's just wrong. And somebody needs to do something about this. Well, those Pluto and Cap kids are most likely the ones who are going to do something about it. And they're only the oldest of them right now are only like 15, just turning 15. So they um, are going to be a, a something to behold. And, and I hope that, that we'll be able to have enough of us that, that help them um, to get out into the world and, and to, to do things in this more hopeful way because there's so little hope in, in the generations that are raising them. I'm, I'm completely blown away by your, it's like you know my son already. <laughs> it's, it's it's funny and i i also i think it's funny that and i may be wrong about this but you talking about astrology was i feel like it's the it's something you really love it's something that amazes me um because i've seen it you know what i've done is i I was a total skeptic and and manly hall was the one i I actually said to him once uh, you don't believe in this stuff do you i mean you're way too smart to think that this is true and he thought that was funny and he said you know what let me introduce you to someone her name was peggy fatemi she was a really good astrologer and he said let her teach you some simple basics and then we can debate whether it's real or not of course he knew she would blow my mind and she did and i started studying it then and so I've kept like these, these 
astrological calendars where I write down like just daily events and such. And I look and over the years, you see these patterns and you see how certain planetary aspects seem to manifest. And to me, this is not, by the way, um, fatalistic. I don't believe that the planets, you know, force us to act in certain ways or something like that. I, I agree with Plotinus who said we all breathe together. So these aspects show us the weather, if you will. And we get to see, oh, wow, so this kind of stuff's up right now. Um, and, and yeah, it's been amazing, man. It's the same thing with the Yi Jing, the, uh, the Chinese omen uh, reading oracle uh, with the coins or the, the uh, stocks. I've experimented with that for most of my life too. And it's, both of them are, are inexplicable and so accurate. It, it's crazy. Now, I'll give you an example, um, silly again, but when the fridge started to, to act up and it's done it before, you know, this is like a 20 year old fridge and we figured out how to keep it going. And uh, but this time it did something that kind of made us go, uh oh, this could be this could be bad. And and so I did a I did a I Ching reading on it. I was like, OK, what does I Ching say about it? And it came up um, when there is hard frost, you know, there will be ice. Right now, the metaphor there means death, basically. It means this thing is dying, but it's talking about frost and ice, right, in the reading. It has done that to me so many times where it talks about the most precise, weird thing. Like, I'll give you another example was we had a leak out in back and we didn't know where it was coming from. It was underneath concrete. And we were like, oh boy, now what do we do? And we asked it about it. And it said, the old widow needs something to plug her right was basically what it was saying and it was it turned out when we that that's exactly what was going on it was a very old pipe that needed to be cut and we needed to seal it off right yeah. so same thing with the astrology you know I'll, I'll i'll write my astrology stuff and and then people will come back at me and go uh you just you just totally described what happened to me that week and i'm just looking at they're like mathematical equations right this planet with this aspect although I do believe that aspects are not good or bad, right? That's something I try to teach people that an apparently bad aspect can be very helpful, very useful. Um, an apparently good aspect can betray us into overdoing it, into overindulging or being overly optimistic in a situation where we shouldn't be. And all aspects have good and bad about them. It's really where we're at in learning the lessons that are indicated by that specific dynamic. So some people, for example, may have a lot of problem dealing with Mars energy. We're about to have a lot of Mars next week. And when Mars is around, they get amped up, they get irritated, they, they get pushy or other people push on them. They don't know how to deal with it. And I've seen this over and over again. It's the weirdest thing is when you, I actually wrote about back in 07, I said, um, something's gonna happen in 08 that's going to, gonna make the whole world uh, afraid of uh, that something has ended, that there's some kind of big change that's going to affect everyone. And, and that's when the financial crisis happened. And it's so weird to see all these people who don't believe in this stuff. And I'm looking at the date and going, okay, here we go, Pluto and Capricorn, what's going to happen? And I actually had a guy here, this is a weird thing. I was introduced to somebody through our work in film who was a big shot at Lehman, right? He wanted to invest in, in documentaries. 
and he came over to my house and he was freaked and and he said don't you can't tell anyone but lehman is 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 going to cease to exist in like a day i mean we're going under the whole thing's going under the whole world's going under and i i just whoa wait a minute what <laughs> what did you just say you know and and so here's all these people who don't believe in it and like they're puppets right right as the the astrology changes they all go and do it they all go and have a panic and they run on the banks and the whole everybody's doing it that is a funny thing that a viewpoint that astrologers get that is a trip that all these proud people are like astrology that's for morons nobody that, that can't possibly exist and then they all go do the thing that the astrology indicates even though they don't want to it's the trip and i don't know what that's about they used to say in the pagan era the the greeks and romans said that that as we descend into incarnation we go through the the different spheres of the different planets and they each give us these gifts that we use as we as we live right so the way our bodies work and uh all these kinds of things then we leave when we die we give these things back to the planetary spheres it's an interesting metaphor i i don't know what is what is it i mean there again we're in confronted by a great mystery ufos you know what's in those ships are they material or not are they you know what's going on there don't know how come astrology can correctly predict this stuff and and people act it out even when they don't believe it don't know uh, so many mysteries. And that's part of the joy of it, I think. I mean, I I do, I like that about this. Whatever this experience we're having is, it's so amazing. And the fact that we can, we can have those moments of love with our with family, friends, pets, whatever, and and share together moments of exhilaration, but also moments of tragedy, and all be in this together is such a beautiful thing. That I feel like. As I've as I've kind of gotten older, I feel like I don't want to know. I don't. I mean, it'd be nice to know and all that, but I don't need to know. What I need to know is, is is how to be me and how to cherish everyone I'm around and how to treat the world in the right way and treat people in the right way, so that you know maybe maybe when I just talk about my life, it does help somebody out there. Um, maybe it it gives somebody hope who didn't have it, and and then I also have this feeling that. I do believe that we go on. I, I don't believe that that after this life we're finished. This is um, crazy that you're saying that because the I, at the end of this, whenever that was, I was going to tell you that the theme of this today was supposed to be life after death, but I didn't ask you about that yet, but you just brought uh, it up. So. <laughs> oh, that's a good place to go then. So I, I believe that that we do go on. And so from that point of view, even if we mess it all up, I mean, it's glib, but um, that same guy who said that that Earth is the kindergarten and devil's island of space, he said that um, that we've already destroyed, that the human collective has already destroyed three planets, as he put it. And and so but he said, but you've got all eternity to learn, you know, just, you know, so now destroy another one if you, if you want to. I mean, if that's what you guys are going to do, then that's what you're going to do. But ultimately, we will rise above that. So that if you do have that belief, and it's not based on faith, um, it's not based on reason, it's based on just experience. And there's a feeling that you get inside yourself where you just know it. You, you, you're, you're sort of, 
I don't know how to explain it. It's like it's it's your body, but you're not the body feeling. I don't know what it is, but but when you have that feeling, you can approach it also with a sense that, hey, even if we mess it all up, we're still just learning. We're, we're here to learn. We're here to improve. Even if the, it all goes haywire, we'll have learned something. All of us will have learned something from that experience. And that helps. So I don't feel like, oh, my God, we could squander all of human civilization. When I had my near-death experience, uh, human civilization didn't seem like much. You know, <laughs> it, it seemed like a, a game, a video game or something that had, that had acquired my attention. And then when I was free of it, I was like, oh, you know, I, I could breathe, man. It was the most amazing experience. I mean, what I experienced was um, I was rising up rising. I mean, it wasn't me. It was consciousness. I was rising up and I, there was like ultraviolet and it was kind of like clouds, like gray kind of clouds that would shot through the ultraviolet. And as I was rising up, the main thing I felt was like the claustrophobia of the body was gone. And suddenly I could breathe like on a level I'd never been able to breathe before. It was beyond breath. It's... And And the funny thing was just like in the classic stories, uh, I felt a tug right, right here, like this, and I woke up out of it. And uh, yeah, it was an amazing experience. I'll never forget it. it. It faced the world. I'd been so immersed in the world. And I remember looking back in a sense on it. I mean, I wasn't turning. I don't know, you know how that works, but consciously I was looking back on what had been my life and it just seemed like it went by like that. And it was this flat little thing, like a, a black and white sitcom or something, you know, just... How did this, how did this keep me so interested? I thought. So I, I yeah, do believe I, in that. And I think it changes how you approach danger and tragedy and, and all the rest of it. And I hope that, that people will, will explore for themselves and awaken this within themselves, because that is a radical change in society. When, when people begin to, to experience that feeling of it's okay, you know, like, like this isn't it. And if I make the mistake now, everything is ruined forever. And it, it's like, you will continue. We will continue to learn. And the purpose here is, is to learn. And so as long as we're learning, we're okay. Even if we make mistakes, it gives you a more, a more relaxed viewpoint on it all. So I do, sometimes it drives people crazy. I mean, maybe it's because I'm, I'm an Aquarius double Sagittarius, but I'll be sitting in a room full of people who are just going off on, you know, how bad everything. I'm just like, I don't know. I think it's going to, I think it's going to work out. I can't even tell you, you know, I can't tell you why, but it's just sort of faith in, in the soul, I guess, or something like, that's why I said it kind of restored my faith in metaphysics. When I talked to so many intelligent, caring people who really have deep understanding and who are, are bringing it to the world. And that's it's a little different than it's been in the past, you know, where it was tough. You had to go to an organization. You had to sit there in the room and meet people. And it's awkward. I mean, you can you can be doing something else, going to do your errands and just scroll up and listen to the podcast and learn incredible things. So I hope that maybe that maybe even AI and robotics ultimately turn out to be a good thing. Maybe they free us from forcing people into uh, the kind of consciousness that will perform jobs that nobody really wants to perform. Um, maybe there will be a universal income because we'll be able to do that. And people will suddenly be faced with, God, what do I do now? And wouldn't that put us in the position of those physicists at the top level or of, 
somebody like uh, Stuart Edward White who could pursue metaphysics without being worried about their next paycheck. What if a bunch of us could pursue life that way? Wouldn't that be amazing? You know, so I don't know. You know, I don't know what'll what'll happen next. I definitely see that the potential for something really bad is there as much as for something really good. Um, maybe because I, I do feel secure in that sense of life after death. It doesn't bother me so much about the bad side of it. I mean, I feel for people and animals and plants and all the wonderful beings that are here. Um, but uh, but I also realize that 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 we're going to have our choices and and collectively and individually if we can make more enlightened choices we'll get better results it's it's like being at school and you know acing the tests things go differently if we divide and um i'll tell you what one of the things that scares me most is just is in human history um there's a great book about this called the garden of our dreams by brian griffith and it's about how throughout history there's a pattern where when there is prosperity rights are given to outsiders to women to even to uh suddenly there's strength in the gay and lesbian community and culture but the minute that desertification begins to occur the minute that that we lose our ability to produce at the level that we were at, then there is a return to autocracy. There is a return to men take men just kind of push everybody aside and say, hey, this is an emergency. We got to take over. And that's how it's going to be. That does concern me. Uh, I, I think you can see it happening. I mean, there's an urge for it. It's it's Putin is that kind of leader. Uh, Trump was that kind of leader. Um, it's a, it's a, it's that you need me to save you. And I think there are people going back to our toxic masculinity question who believe that, that you need a toxic masculine figure when we're facing those situations. And, and I feel like you're, um, the statement we made way earlier where you said that the best, which was when you said it, I was kind of like wait, we might have to edit that out because it sounds a little scary. You said <laughs> the best killer is not the most toxic. And I was like, I wonder who's going to hear this and take right. it to heart. And be like, hmm. Hmm, I could do that. Well, I'll try to use a samurai as a good example, but I'm not sure that is a good example. <laughs> <laughs> I just, and then... Sorry, now I have to bring up a second thing that I thought when you said that. We also mentioned Laurel Canyon. Yes. And then we talked about being the best killer. And I was yes. like, if someone was going to develop this into the start of a murder podcast, it's a good start because it's a lot of stuff about Laurel Canyon that. Oh, yeah. I, did you live near there? Were you? Yes. Yeah. And, and also that guy, Arthur Johnson, that I was talking about throughout the podcast, lived there in the 1960s and used to jam with Stephen Stills and with the Zappa people and all that. So he, he gave me these descriptions of it that were wild, you know, just on one level, he was talking about how great it was. 
um, from his highly misogynistic boomer point of view. So, for example, he said that at Stephen Stills' house, these naked teenage girls would be walking around with trays full of acid and, and uh, joints and coke and stuff. And they just walk into the room with it and here, you know, do you want some? And um, he said it was like this uh, paradise for a musician to be there. Uh, he said that, as he put it, uh, it was, he said, it was a kind of place where girls would drive in from all the surrounding suburbs just to hook up with long haired guys. <laughs> that that was the yeah. best time to have long hair. But then he also told me stories about the dark side of Laurel Canyon, which I would consider that misogyny part of the dark side too. Yes. Um, okay. I'm glad we, I was like, I was like, Hey Ronnie, say something. <laughs> oh yeah of course yeah no it's super exploitational you know and and just awful i mean the the way that that women weren't allowed this is what's so weird about it man is he told me that like they all thought Joni mitchell was god so they were all ripping her off they were all intimidated by her they all thought she was by far the most talented person in, in the whole thing neil young all of them just thought Joni mitchell so they they were able to do that you know to go look at this woman she's she's a brilliant genius but hey get me one of those kids over here to bring you know i mean just awful i don't understand how they could be so uh such hypocrites but but they were raised you know they thought they were that they were part of a sexual revolution that was liberating humanity on some level that, that yeah. this was at least their their uh, justification for it it just, but, it just it just seems like when we're talking about it, we are lit like, let's say someone would say, oh, but Jim Morrison, blah, 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 blah. But I, as a fan of The Doors and Jim Morrison, I would say that Jim Morrison directly has like that culture led to the more crazy parts of TikTok now. Yeah. Like that same level of freedom when people are like, oh, my God, my kid's scrolling all day. Like, well, he's not doing acid all day, at least. Yeah. Like, it's, like, so some people, and I do think, of course, like, TikTok or, like, phone addiction is horrible. But is it truly worse than, like, something horrible that, like, a, a, another violent kind of revolution to lifestyle? I don't know. And I shouldn't, and I'm not saying, I don't know. I have the Joni Mitchell thing. Mm-hmm. How does, I feel like I'm wondering, where do you live now? Not like specifically where your house is, but generally. I, st I still live in the Hollywood area. Do you feel, and this is going to be a weird question because you're going to find out something about me. So I, most people know this, I used to be a professional fighter. Like, Oh, wow. What and form? Uh, Muay Thai and I wow, used to like nice. and then but I I stopped I for some reason started a marketing company and I ventured into marketing and doing things for people in LA mm -hmm. and the the darker side of LA was what was calling to me and it's what answered when I showed up there and it was pretty terrifying and like my it was a quick ascent and when I got to wherever I was going, I was kind of terrified and I just jumped out mm -hmm. and my life took a complete like free fall. But it's interesting going back to L.A. I can 
I can feel where that energy is. And I'm like, I'm just going to stay away from here. I don't want this anymore. But are you aware of that looming, the presence in LA that goes back? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's something that, I mean, I grew up here. So it's it's something that I've been trying to survive and to flourish around my whole life. And that's part of why I loved uh, Riot Girl and Anarcho-Punk because they formed separately from all the established kind of institutionalized evil all over LA. Um, been very fortunate with Manly Hall, for example, to find that gem of a, of a place and person in the middle of LA. Uh, but all along having to deal with whatever I was doing, music, film, uh, metaphysics, dealing with the arrival and the threat of people whose motivations and whose uh, power are dangerous. And there was a time really early on where I liked that um, because I was powerless. And and then as soon as I got into music and I had this this really nihilist band that was appealing to uh, bikers and white supremacists and people like that, um, and a lot of violence around it. And I liked it. I, people would do violence on my behalf without even asking me. And I thought, wow, this is great. I was like 18 or something. I was so stupid. And uh, so I, I relished that about LA. And I relished, I relished that our manager was a criminal. And I, I liked that the clubs were owned by the mob and, and all kinds of horrible things were going on behind the scenes that were like fascinating. You? Pardon? I said, who are you? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I was, I was like, uh, you know, I, to me, it was, it was a place, first of all, I felt worthless. So I wanted to be around other people who I thought were worthless, which were people devoted to doing bad things. Um, and I always attuned myself in how to protect myself around that. So um, I carefully cultivated at that time, an image of somebody that was super threatening, like like not sane, because I knew that that worked. It really worked, man. Like even dealing with mob people and stuff like that, because they because it, thanks to Charlie Manson, you know, like if you were the right kind of crazy looking musician, people were afraid of you. And so I could I could kind of have power in dealing with people that normally would have thought of me as just nothing, you know. And I had a cult. I had you know I had two biker gangs following me and stuff. So. Um, I got a hell of a reputation and I was super, oh my God. I mean, talk about grateful that no one got hurt, man. No one got seriously hurt. And, uh, and thank God I met Tamara and she, she taught me about love and honesty and all that, but I was headed for something bad. Um, but so at that point, I felt like I was part of it. Like I embraced it and I went, yeah, let's, let's be evil. Let's do what LA does, you know, and, and just take advantage of everybody. And, uh, but once I met Manly Hall, you know, in the midst of all this in this town and, and the people that worked for him, the, the, they were so wholesome and so sweet and so good and just it completely changed me. And I wanted to be like that. And the fact that he had flourished here was mind blowing too. And then the Bodhi Tree Bookstore was also an amazing place filled with amazing people where you could have an experience like I, I was at the time um, I was studying Tibetan Buddhism and I was interested in, in the drops. I hadn't figured out the connection to the Bindus. 
And I was like, what is this, you know, this subtle body system? I don't get it. Um, I was in the Bodhi Tree bookstore in the Buddhist branch looking at these Tibetan books. And there was this guy there in a plaid shirt, this Asian man. And uh, he started talking to me. And um, it turned out that he was basically a Zen Buddhist master. This was his thing. He would come to the Bodhi Tree at random times and stand in the Buddhist section and like have these Zen interactions with people. And I must have had, I don't know, maybe 10 interactions with him over a year. And he woke me up. Uh, I suddenly had the full on Zen experience because of him. And I suddenly, it, it, he got mad at me the first time. So I said to him, um, well, do you, you know, do you know, about, can, do you know about Buddhism? And he's like, mm-hmm. And I was like, well, what, where are the drops? Like, are they in the subtle body or are they connected? And he like got mad and he went, he went, what are the drops? What are the drops when there is no mind? <laughs> right. And I was like, I took that home and I was like, what? No, wait, wait, okay, so wait yeah. there's no mind. So what are the, you know, it took me a long time to work that one through. But, yeah. um, but so when you can have experiences like that in LA or you can, you can have a girl walk up to you and say, please help me. And you fall in love with her and it's the love of your life. I mean, that's the funny thing about LA. While it does have this deep, dark side, it also has this weird kind of angelic side to it. And amazing moments happen here. Uh, I, I can't explain it. It's uh, okay. just recently. Did you hear about that cougar dying P-22? Yes, yes. In LA, this has become like this thing. I mean, it brought the community together in this incredible way where people I never would have expected or were like grieving this cat and people walk around wearing buttons now, like with his face on them and stuff. And they're building a monument. They're building a nature overpass that will be named after him. And um, they want to have a stamp. And they, I mean, just crazy stuff going on. The whole city kind of came together around it. And it was a very moving moment. So there are things like that that happen here that can be really special. Um, and then there are things that aren't. We used to say, and this is way too simplified, it's not true, but we used to say, it's not the native Angelinos, it's the people that move here that bring the evil. The native Angelinos are, are pretty much good people, but people come here thinking, this is where I can do whatever I want. Um, yeah. They cause trouble, but that's not really true. There's a lot of ugly native Angelinos too. I just... I wonder if there's there's something about Laurel Canyon specifically or like LA. I wondered that. You know? I just wonder if there's like something energetically odd that like like a ley line or something. Yeah, it could be. I don't know. It's a beautiful place, but it's also eerie and part of it's the history. Um there's the ruins of like Zappa, the old Zappa house is still there. It's like this creepy looking old mansion and um, everything's filled with the ghosts of, of the past. People always know that's the store that Jim Morrison went to, or that's where he used to live. And it's it's thick with these ghosts. But the weird thing is it's not really doing much. It hasn't done anything in like, man, I don't know, 60 years or something. I mean, not much has happened there. It's just this quiet place that's haunted by this one period during its history when there was such dramatic artistic creativity going on. Yeah, and I guess now it's been the thing that was was started in Hollywood, which was like the the programming or the cultural control has become decentralized. It's like yeah. an online process now. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, very like different. 
So every country just syncs up like they see the celebrity. They're like, oh, yeah, we need one of these. Like mm-hmm. South Korea is like, oh, yeah, we need our own Ariana Grande. Let's do mm-hmm. it. Let's, mm-hmm. So I guess, yeah, the exports. It's just it's weird because I didn't know you were still in L.A. And now I wonder, like. I feel like the the likelihood of you interacting with. With metaphysical energy the way you are and metaphysical activities people who think of LA as would think of it as a very like metropolitan like a city rooted in modern day they need it's like there's there are two sides of it I guess mm-hmm. that are well every you know here's the thing man everybody's smoking weed now I mean the whole city is like just weed it's weed city and And although most people are just playing video games (laughs) and watching videos and stuff, um, I think there will be some kind of a creative reaction. I hope so. There always is when there's that kind of infusement. I mean, I mean, I would suggest that that the the new strains of weed and the new uh, delivery methods and such are virtually a new kind of drug almost. I mean, they've taken it to another level. So I hope that at some point we'll see some kind of a creative flowering happen here. Although it seems to be on the verge of collapse at any minute, but it has been for a long time. Um, but it's it's certainly not doing very well now, and uh, and the culture here is, uh, I mean, you know, this has been bad. I mean, most of the musicians have had to move out of here. It's too expensive to live here, so the arts have have suffered greatly. Uh, man, I've never. I mean, we started having a hard time finding musicians. Uh, as early as the late 2000s. It was unbelievable. I mean, just to find a drummer who could play a shuffle beat was was like impossible. Um, Tamara wrote a line about it in one of her songs, it's souls so soulless they can't keep shuffle time. <laughs> right, and so it's uh, it, it's gonna be weird. I don't know what'll happen here. Um, it's It's, we're at a strange inflection point um there's a lot of foreign money coming in and they've built up sunset boulevard with these giant like hotels and and condo structures that nobody's in oh that that's where we're going to be recording episode 200 ronnie that sounds good yes for and while as we summon uh lam alistair crowley's original alien he'll finally step out that that's how this this ends and they'll turn, I don't know, actually, I went a little off the deep end. I just realized it's been three hours. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is, a, I feel like that's a, I don't know how to wrap up. Is it a record? That, it's a record no, for me. I, th- I think it's, I think I've, I've done three hours and 26 minutes. All right. All right. <laughs> I'm number two then. I think, I'm, yeah, next, I, time, I, next time. Yes, <laughs> next time. I feel like. Uh, I'm so thankful for your time. Um, but also there's one, there's a last question. It's very short. Um, the point of idiot mystic, even though the name, it was originally meant to be called something else. I was trying to keep like an, an audio record of people I knew. And then so that in, by the end of my lifetime, I've talked to my friends many times and, um, so there's some kind of chronological progression and record of what they're doing. So I was wondering today, after you record this, what are you doing? 
on a personal level? Let's see. Um, I will be taking food out of the the old dying fridge and 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 putting it back into the new fridge. Very romantic. Yes. And uh, <laughs> and then um, I don't know. Then Tamara and I will decide uh, what to do with our evening, which could be anything. Um, we might write. We might maybe tonight will be the night we make a little music. I don't know. Um, sometimes it just depends on uh, our mood. The other night. We were so lucky. We we uh, had been watching some basketball, and we turned over to TCM, and we just caught the beginning of Seven Samurai, and I love that movie. I love anything by Kurosawa. So we just sat and watched that, you know. So so we'll let chance play, and hopefully we'll have a good time tonight. Yes, I th I think you will, and I think people listening should should know when they're. I guess if someone's not watching this, they should watch it because you look very happy talking about the rest of your evening. And it made me very happy. No, thank you. Also, I'm surprised that you watch basketball, but I'm going to leave it at that. I'm just surprised. Grew up in LA, man. Lakers are the best soap opera in the world. <laughs> so is it, it does do the, do the stars say that LeBron is winning again this year? I, I don't know. I had not looked into that. He is a Capricorn, though, and they tend to get uh, better as they get older, so it's possible. <laughs> what? So you're saying that you have it on good authority that LeBron is a Capricorn. Yeah. And he's getting older and is going to win. I don't know if he's going to win because there's a lot. There's a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, that's a whole nother thing. They're talking about the chemistry and AD and all that stuff and who the other guys are. But he's an interesting character and uh, somebody who uh, I think does typify that Capricorn ability to get younger as you get older. It's a weird thing. And that should be true, by the way, of your kid, too, because Pluto and Capricorn kids are going to they get younger as they get older. And he, I'm just so amused right now that this is the first time I've ever asked someone who knows what they're talking about to apply astrology to the NBA. And it seems <laughs> like it's a fascinating thing that should be done more. Well, I was, you want to say really weird. Let's leave it on this. I actually wrote about it briefly in the book is the superstitions of Lakers fans regarding Kobe Bryant is are hilarious. Like the, and we're talking like even like Christian and Catholic people who they'll say things like, did you notice that we won the game by 24 points? That was Kobe. <laughs> or, or, oh my God. But you know what? It happened in eight minutes. In eight minutes. Did you see that? 24 points in eight minutes. That's, that's Kobe sending a message, man. He's helping the Lakers. It's really funny. <laughs> I hope for his sake and his, everyone's sake that they know that he has moved on beyond basketball in, his, in the afterlife. That, he, that I'm willing to speak on the behalf of Kobe Bryant and say that he is not limited to being a basketball. Manipulating spectator. basketball yes. scores. Yes, Why? <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. I really, enjoy, I really enjoy our conversations. This man, was anytime. amazing. I don't yeah, even yeah. know what this was. I'm just going to press stop recording so we actually okay. get the recording.